Hey you, you're listening to Sloancast, your one-stop shop deep dive where we discuss anything and everything about the greatest band of all time, Patrick Patlin, Andrew Scott, Jay Ferguson, and Chris Murphy, collectively known as Sloan. We are your fellow superfan hosts. I'm Rob. This is Ken. Ken, how's it going, my buddy? Good. I've, I've been working at least for the past three or four years on my grunge hair. Um, I think I've reached sort of pre-Pearl Jam Eddie Vedder. Um, although I, I must say that, you know, I've, I've probably been shampooing too much um, in the meantime. So my, my look isn't where it could be. But nonetheless, I feel very excited and prepared to talk about our topic for today and to welcome our guest for today back to Sloancast. Greg Pollard, welcome back, sir. Hey, thanks so much. You get, like I said, I've, I've been I've been dying to get back on and talk about Sloan because I don't have too many outlets uh, to speak so freely <laughs> about this this love that this shared love that we have, and uh, so it's awesome to be back. And lots happened since then. We got a new Sloan record. Yeah, yeah. Man. There's a tour, so it's a really really exciting time to be a fan. I feel like, uh, you know, it was like two years of time leading up to this point, you know, for, for me, as far as two, two years of insane fandom going past casual yeah. fandom. So, cause you're, 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 you're still in the grand scheme of things, a fairly recent fan. Have you felt as though your, your, your love for the band has amplified even more? And this is a leading question, obviously, but has, has your love for the band been amplified even more uh, over the past couple of years? Hundred percent. I mean, I I feel like uh, like one of those like uh, I don't know what the people that knock the Jehovah's Witness. Like I feel like just <laughs> telling everybody like you know here's our Lord and Savior. Slow, the people that knock, <clears throat> and it was cool because like you know a band that's been around as long as they have to still have people get into them and get excited. And I noticed uh, Brian Walsby, who uh, does you know art punk art he does a lot of stuff for melvins and all that he did that sloan t-shirt and kind of you know has the same story as me he's like i wish i could say i was into these guys for 30 years but uh you know it took whatever to get him kind of on board and now he's like a fanatic as well so yeah i feel like i'm in some good company i've known the band existed and we'll talk about that but yeah you know fantastic this is great. And Ken, you'll notice that both Greg and myself have our shoegaze hair. So it kind of fits right. in with the topic at hand. And, uh, <clears throat> but so, yeah, no, Greg, great to have you back. And I want to say off the top here, man, if you could just remind everybody, you've obviously been on previously, but if this is the first time people are hearing from you for whatever reason, uh, please let them know where they can reach you. Obviously the where it went podcast and the something to do podcast. Yeah. And just, uh, you know, those something to do has been a little dormant, but we, we got some stuff brewing and, where it went is uh, my my main podcast gig. I wish it was my main gig. It's not. Um, sometimes I think people forget that we all do this just for fun. Right. <laughs> I don't know about you guys, but a lot of people like sort of like complain about taking a long time for an episode or something. That's like, yo, we we have like real jobs and stuff. But um, yeah, where it went podcast. We we uh, going through the Revelation Records catalog. You know, because I'm a hardcore kid at heart. That's where I came from, and it's been super fun. To get to talk to a lot of cool people, and uh, the worlds don't quite inter- intersect completely. But like Sloan, hmm. they have their place. I mean, That's we great. we talked. You know, we talked about all those hardcore 
covers and whatnot. But yeah, the yeah, worlds man. the worlds are engaging in parallel play. And and, uh, and I don't know if you noticed, I actually have another smeared Easter egg in this T-shirt here. Okay, because they toured with the Lemonheads, right? Wasn't that the first full U.S. tour? Was with Lemonheads on the. It's a shame about Ray record. I wore this on purpose just for you guys. Nice. That's fantastic. <laughs> Am I right? Some someone will correct. Maybe Murph is listening. Yeah, without, without having the archival material to confirm that, uh, I believe that's correct. That's yeah. Right. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say I saw Patrick mention it. Uh, sure. Before in his something. But. Maybe his Patreon. I, I don't yep. recall. Which, there by the is. way, if you're not. You should subscribe to his Patreon. It's awesome. Hundred percent. Lots it's of well worth it. Lots of smeared era reminiscences <laughs> uh, on his Patreon. So well worth the yeah. uh, five bucks a month. And I do want to mention to the listeners too regarding Greg and his output. You've also got an Instagram account, My Records Ranked, which I'm a huge fan of. Um, you're currently ranking the REM discography, but. Just recently, uh, uh, listeners can go and check it out and scroll down a little bit. You had you did Sloan within the past few months as well. So um, that was so fun. Yeah, that, that was, was super awesome fun. to follow along. I was cheering for my faves, and I, I, I think it kind of we 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 pretty much agree in 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 the general sense. But uh, we all know what the we what the true masterpiece is. I think we all have the same number one. <laughs> yeah, uh, was right? Was, was Don't your, we? Yeah, your number one was never hear the end of it too, right? Yeah. 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 Great. Great call. It's like literally one of the full stop, like best records of all time. Oh. There it is. I mean, and, 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 this and, and, is why, this is why you're always welcome on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, man. It's such a, it's such a classic. And we, we obviously were edging on that towards that topic uh, in the last few episodes, the action packed episodes. And I'm sure we'll hopefully this year get back to some more, never at the end of a talk. But anyway, uh, the album at hand today, ladies and gentlemen, uh, smeared, uh, so this is the full length debut. We can kind of hit, you know, hit timelines, go back and forth here, but real quick, just to start the listener off, it's the full length debut from the band, uh, released in October 92 in Canada, January 93 in the U S. But I think, I think in order to get good context on this conversation, I feel more so than any album that we dote on, on Sloancast, it's important to put on like your time traveling boots, because we need to plunge 31 years down the Sloan looking glass to the year 1992, which for me at least feels like a mystical time in Canadian history, at least. It's a time in which a wave of European produced dance groups with such names as Snap, Two Unlimited, The Real McCoy, and the Captain Hollywood Project left Canadian youth wanting more and more and more on the Friday night gym floor. Uh, it's a year, however, in which the Rankin family ruled large over the Nova Scotian music scene, while Jimmy Rankin bid us fare thee well, love. A summer in which a disastrous show at Montreal's Stade Olympique saw Metallica frontman James Hetfield suffer second and third degree burns as he faded a bit too hard to black, while Axel Rose's ensuing decision to cut Guns N' Roses' set list short caused metalhead Morialet to go buckwild in the streets of Hochelaga Maisonneuve. And of course, Rob, you might recall the year in which Joe Carter hit his game-winning home run to secure the Toronto Blue Jays' first of two consecutive and Canada's first ever World Series title. Instant- We're not going to talk about 1993 World Series. <laughs> <laughs> This instantaneously made him a honorary citizen of TSN Nostalgia Reels. 
forever. Um, however, I think for, uh, for our purposes here and for, for the purposes of this podcast and this episode, it was a year of upheaval for a group of Haligonian art school dilettantes, amateur musicians, kind of uh, waning artists. And it must have been quite the ride to be, I wasn't there, n- neither of you were, I was eight, you know, you guys were much older. It must have been quite the ride to be, you know, a music fan, a youth music fan in Halifax at this point in time and to witness sort of the 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 soaring success of this band that really had just emerged from uh, a number of up and coming groups about a year and a half prior, right? I mean, this this the acceleration into Smeared is nothing short of impressive. Yeah, hundred percent, man. Couldn't agree more. Um, <clears throat> I love that you fit the Blue Jays in there. Sorry, Greg, um, <laughs> but uh, no, it's something else, man. I mean, I, I want to kind of wring my brain out here for everything that I know about this period, kind of leading up to this to the smeared record. Um, and then we can kind of go through the record and talk about it just as fans. I mean, to be completely honest, we don't have a ton of fan insight. Um, and I wanted to kind of say this off the top of the show too, just for the listener at home, you know, we're big fans of the band. We know a little bit by virtue of the fact that we're just super fans. Um, but this podcast is also a journey for us too. And I think, can you agree over the past three years of this podcast being a thing, we've learned a lot, you know, and I think we mm-hmm. improve our information and kind of are able to hopefully correct the record here and there when we can. But yeah, I mean, it's quite something. I mean, there is something special about these four dudes coming together and creating this band. And, you know, they've all been in bands previously. They've been pretty active, you know, in Halifax and they've all played with different people and different lineups. And, um, and, and, and you could almost maybe assume that this coming together is sort of just is not you know, necessarily super intentional. Um, mm. They're, you know, like Chris and Jay have been in Carney Lake road within the past year together. And uh, Chris and Andrew know each other and they'd been playing in a project or a, a project that had a number of different names that it went by. Uh, and then suddenly at the end of 1990, they find themselves, you know, waiting for Andrew to come back from Toronto Jay sees Andrew in Toronto at a Sonic youth show and is like, Oh, Hey, I heard, you know, when you come back that we're going to be getting this thing together. They do. They have one practice with another guy. Then they bring in Patrick, who just is fresh out of Happy Co. And this chemical thing occurs where these four guys create, you know, over the course of the next year with a single digit amount of live shows, which is crazy. Mm -hmm. You know, I think Murph has been quoted as saying like something like nine shows. You know what I mean? Like not a a ton of playing. Um, But they took what they had and, you know, they rolled the dice and somehow they, I mean, there's certain... I mean, obviously, they talk about um, uh, success being opportunity meeting preparation, you know, and I think that these guys were prepared when opportunity came to call. And, um, yeah, that's sort of how things are leading up. They, 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 they form, uh, you know, they're practicing, and they start off kind of playing music that is at one point sort of Minutemen-esque. I mean, certainly the early mm-hmm. Underwhelmed, I think Chris has mentioned, is, is inspired in that regard. Um, even some of the later songs on this record, as you get through to like two seater and stuff, which almost sounds like a punked up Carney Lake road kind of song with a, with a new beat or something, Mm. you feel the sort of echoes of those older projects. Um, 
but uh, yeah, they get the they get the the go ahead with Terry Pulliam to record and cut me off by the way here. If you guys want to interject, I'm just yarning on. But they get the go ahead to record with Terry Pulliam, and the thing that I really noticed when I was listening the past couple of days to kind of for this episode to prepare, you know, listening to Smeared and comparing it to things that it was really informed by, like those first My Bloody Valentine EPs, for example. Yeah. Um, uh, it's really slick and and obviously dgc ultimately paid for it to have you know the remix and the triggers added to the drums and uh i think it's what is it dave ogilvie who's yeah. the producer who uh or the first or the remixer i should say yeah um but yeah it's really interesting <clears throat> they uh, uh you know this sort of like i said earlier this chemical thing happens where these four guys come together and, and something i wanted to mention too sorry i'm just going on and on once again but um it's crazy to imagine what would have happened had this band not taken off so quickly, you know? And I mean, maybe for them, it would have felt like forever. It was like roughly a year or so before they get signed. But, you know, Andrew's kind of back and forth to Toronto. He's really, he's always talked about painting being like his number one and the band being his number two. I think he kind of still feels that way, you know, had they not been signed, he may as very well just, gone off to Toronto early on and stayed there. They would have never got signed, never toured, and this band would have gone nowhere. I'd like to think that the other members would have still done something, but uh, it's quite something when you think about you know how close you know everything was there. Like the the, the fates were sort of in their favor, and yeah. Um, yeah. So so they get they get uh, checked out. What is it? The Halifax uh, pop explosion? Is that it? When they get the the look from MCA? Yeah, it could have been during the pop explosion. Yeah, that's a good point. And then they they tour out to uh, BC to play Vancouver, I think it is for somebody from DGC, um, and uh, whose name is escaping me right now. What a jerk! Todd Sullivan. Um, Todd, Todd Sullivan. Thank you, Todd. Uh, future guest, hopefully. And uh, <laughs> and they play to basically nobody. They tour out that way to basically nobody just to play this one show for this guy, and he's like, "I'm in." And then there you go, there you have it. And and like the painting a room, Carney Lake Road song, with their deal. And I'm kind of just painting the picture, if you will. They do what they say they're going to do in that song, which is you support us and we'll support you. And then they kind of start their own little business of we're going to have murder records and we're going to support the, the community, the arts community. We're going to put out records by these different artists that we like. And uh, they have their own little cottage industry, essentially. And before DGC can put out Smeared, they used some of that money to fund putting out Peppermint on murder records themselves. And whether they had the complete foreknowledge or not, they sort of set themselves up for the future with this mm-hmm. ability to, and then it kind of would come in handy in 96, putting it out themselves one chord to another. But uh, yeah, so I kind of went on and on <laughs> kind of get, getting some of the early details in for the stuff that I can think of. But um, yeah, there we have it. These four dudes record this music and we can, Take this wherever you want. I like. I noticed in the Wikipedia that I didn't know this, but the record was originally called Glue Gun, um, mm. which is a very early '90s album title. I guess Smeared is sure. technically as well. Um, right. Yeah, and it, for sure. Just some stats here. It only cost twelve hundred bucks, roughly, to make. Uh, mm. This would have been uh, the band working with Terry Pulliam, who was a guest of the show from about a year or so ago, uh, local Halifax musician and producer who had a contest. The guys entered, they won, uh, and they used that uh, recording time over the course of, I guess, the next few weeks and months to compile the songs that would make up the Peppermint EP, and of course, this, the Smeared album. Yeah, so so there are a couple songs that appear on both releases, Peppermint and Smeared, for those who are following along with their 
CD copies at home or whatever, or if you've got mm-hmm. vinyl like Greg and they're making me incredibly jealous. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think it's, what is it? Marcus said and uh, sugar tune are, are the two from peppermint that make it their way onto uh, smeared and then and a, re-rec- a re-record of underwhelmed. But uh, yeah, man. So let's, where do we even jump off here? And, and it, it, it's, it is uh, uh, important to note that um, mm. the, the rumor mill has been that there's a smeared 30th anniversary, or I guess it would be 32nd anniversary now uh, in the mm. pipeline. So who knows, you know, that would make my day. Obviously this year, I would love to have a copy of smeared on vinyl. And uh, you know, with all the chatter we hear about various songs that kind of didn't go anywhere. I mean, even the Vermonstrous thing that we were listening to within the past year, Ken, and and, uh, there was an audio cassette that showed up on YouTube in the past few months with some interesting versions of songs and things. And so there's gotta Mm. be like tons of material there, demos and B sides and stuff that was unreleased. Uh, So very excited to potentially hear that. Well, I was, I was going to say with murder records to me, that was like them taking the cue from discord Mm-hmm. and stuff like that sure. like, like i'm not saying that, like that it's was just murph's idea maybe it was i don't know yeah. and again hopefully he, he's listening he can tell me whether i'm right or wrong but i love that they they kind of did that and then they did put out support local bands mm-hmm. i think the context of this record is very important like like you guys both said sure i was experiencing this era in real time, just not Sloan. So like if I do wonder had I lived in Canada, maybe I would have, this would have caught on because Mm -hmm. by 90 end of 92, 93, well, this came out in 93 here, right? US, you said January. So I'd have been in grade six uh, here, which is, I don't know what it is for you. It's middle school. Mm -hmm. And I was already into Sonic youth at that point. Nirvana and like Artie was developing that label identity. Like to me, DGC was like the coolest freaking label there was sure. at the time. Cause again, you, you look at the roster, it's like on this rarities thing and you had Nirvana, uh, Sonic youth, teenage fan club, uh, God, whatever, you know, tons of stuff. Um, so it was kind of crazy that like at the time they signed to what was like the hippest major label. Yeah. But I've often wondered like if this record came out on sub pop and they were able to like build a, I don't know, things could have went differently. Like what if they built like a big indie buzz and then they signed, Hmm. I'm happy with the way things turned out though. So there really isn't anything that I would, change but i I think this record kind of gets glossed over even by fans i think it's important to talk about the context and about 1992 in general uh and what where music you know music has pop music as a whole and rock music more specifically were in 1992 because it's a completely different world to what we're talking about, you know, even 10 years later or five years later. And in the grand scheme of things, for a band that's been around for 32 years, you know, it's it, it almost seems alien talking about, and I, I, I jest a little bit, obviously, and I, I put in, you know, some references to Eurodance groups and stuff like that uh, at, at the beginning in this, in this little intro thing. But, you know, that that was the reality of the time. 
we're talking about bands having to compete for airwaves more than anything else to make it big and to get out of your indie niche in many ways, I think is so much easier today uh, in the, in the, in the day of, you know, kind of choose your own adventure and, and, and streaming, Absolutely. Um, you know, it feels as though you're putting yourself in a corner if you decide to become, and I'm just going to, you know, name drop, name drop a genre here. But if you, if you decide you're going to put yourself in the shoegaze vein, good luck finding airwaves in Canadian radio in 1992. Like there might be a niche for that in the States in some regards, but for college radio, yeah. maybe. I mean, that's, and that's, that's pretty much it. That's it. But like what, what's, what's bombarding us on the airwaves in 92. In fact, I have prepared a list. This is the other thing that I prepared for, uh, for today's episode, but the RPM magazine's top singles of 1992 in Canada, be prepared. I thought Canada in some regards, and this is maybe just like my own bias or something was a little bit more eclectic in some things than the States. But when I read the top 10 singles of 1992 in Canada, number 10, Eric Clapton's tears in heaven, uh, number nine, Elton John's the one number eight, Madonna's this used to be my playground. Number seven, Mariah Carey's I'll be there. Uh, number six, you two one, Number five, here he comes again, Eric Clapton's Layla, the unplugged version. Um, this reminds me of like dinner with my parents in 1992. Uh, number four, Celine Dion's If You Asked Me To. Uh, number three, Alana Miles' Song Instead of a Kiss. Number two, Mr. Biggs to be with you. Oh, God. Finally. <laughs> and can you guys, can you guys, can you guys guess what the number one single of 1992 in Canada was? Was it Whitney Houston uh, from Bodyguard? No, no. no Can I, I guess? Uh, was it All for Love, uh, Brian Adams, Rod Stewart, and fucking whoever the other guy was staying? I believe that was 93, so no. Fuck. Uh, it was Patti Smith's and Don Henley's Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough. Oh, Guys, Patty, was it Smythe or Smith, right? It wasn't the Patti Smith. Right? Oh, it was Patti Smythe. Yeah, I'm sorry. I've, I was going to say. There, there is a pronunciation <laughs> nuance there. but Patti Smith wouldn't do that. Like... The the Billboard Top 100 of that year is a lot more eclectic. There's a lot more interesting stuff going on. Uh, Greg, you being in a Philly uh, vicinity, Boys to Men, top selling single of so you know R and B is becoming a huge thing in pop culture in the states. Um, grunge is still holding its own, I guess, in terms of representing rock music on the pop music charts. Um, however, Canada is still kind of in this weird, dormant, lagging behind period. And how do you make it? Like as a band, you you can only look to the majors in the states and try to get a breakthrough in the states. Right. I think one of the things that's interesting too is like, and I don't have the numbers, <clears throat> but like you'll hear like like you said. I think the reality is that we, or maybe even me like romanticize that era and be like, Oh my gosh, 1992, everything that was popular was great. But the real reality is it was a lot of this manufactured like mm. R and B stuff. Cause even, you know, never mind. It's like, you know, in what January of 92, right before SNL, they, they, they played on Saturday night live here. I realized, I don't know if people, do people in Canada care about Saturday night live? Sure. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. Big fan here. Okay, good. So they, you know, 
dethrone Michael Jackson for number one, which obviously is a huge deal, right? Mm-hmm. But it's not like the album stayed like it. It sold a lot, but it didn't stay at number one, you know, for the entire 1992. So I sometimes feel like it seems like, oh yeah, 92 was just like Pearl Jam, Nirvana, uh, you know, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden. It's like to a degree, yeah, but as far as actual pop culture goes, not nearly as much. Mm-hmm. The, the numbers don't lie, like what we see of these charts. Yeah. So yeah, a band like Sloan, I don't know. Could they have been like huge in 1990? I mean, I think they should have been. I think Underwhelmed. I mean, to me, like if if Flaming Lips were able to have that hit the next sure. year, yeah. like this yeah. song should have been much bigger than it was. Yeah, It's interesting. I'm glad you brought up Nirvana. Sorry to cut you off there, Ken. Um, <clears throat> because this is sort of how I in my head perceive things. Correct me if I'm wrong. You know, the guys get together and we see that video of what their first show was early 91, I want to say, right? Like the cafeteria mm-hmm. show. And <laughs> it's pretty – it's – you know the elements are all there, but sort of obviously the the drive and the bounce of the music isn't fully there yet. It, they're still kind of yeah. finding their legs, and I think you know something that the guys had in common early on was a band like the Minutemen. You know, and Chris has talked about uh, Underwhelm being um, uh, the uh, what's the song from Double, uh, Double Nickels on the Dimes that he's referencing with Underwhelmed. I want to say fan letter to Michael Jackson, but I know that's a real static song. Oh, a pop song for Michael Jackson to sing or something like that? Is that the name of the song? I should look it up so I don't sound like a complete fucking doofus. They would have obviously had a band like the Minutemen uh, in common. And uh, and I think it's political song for Michael Jackson to sing is the one that Chris has name-checked as being like a sort of right. early inspiration for the architecture, the, the blueprint of the first version of Underwhelmed, mm. right? So I think... You know, they're sort of playing around and even the early rehearsal footage that we see, you know, um, it's, it's, it's way more experimental and sort of avant-garde sounding. It's not really, they're not trying to have people dancing and clapping their hands and, you know, like having fun at the rock show or whatever. It's a little more sort of, uh, left of center, if you will, and a little noisier and that kind of thing, Mm. a little more arty experimental. And then what I think happens is while they're recording or while they're getting ready to record, Nirvana happens. And they become the biggest band in the world. And so where their tendency up until this point has been to really lean into My Bloody Valentine, which is, I think, another band that guys can all agree on. There are a a few of them. Um, They steer, and they steer kind of a little into Nirvana, just a little bit. And I think mostly with Underwhelmed and mostly with the the fill that opens up Underwhelmed being the Mm -hmm. aneurysm fill, right? Um, And just basically taking, because if you listen to Underwhelmed version one from Peppermint and number two, they're night and day songs. They're obviously the same song, but I mean, like, had Underwhelmed number one been the only the only version i mean certainly i don't think it would have been as impactful for no. sure because underwhelm was their calling card she was underwhelmed if that's a word i know it's not because i looked it up it's one of the skills i learned in my
something had to have happened between Peppermint and Smeared. And maybe it's just the maturation of the band. Maybe it's the motivation of knowing that they're signed to a major label and that yeah, they have the same major of, label as the biggest band in the world. Sure. Yeah. yeah. And that, you know, they had, they have to kind of show that they have table stakes here. Um, because the, I think the song selection, the production quality, uh, certainly the way in which they approach the composition of the tracks is quite a bit different than Peppermint. You know, I think, I, I think to some of the stuff that's on Peppermint, uh, Torn, for example, I mean, it's not amateur hour at the pub Flamingo or whatever, but it is very much more in the direction of we are an art school band than we are signed to DGC and we're ready to, you know, make it big. Um, but isn't Peppermint basically just a, their demo, right? Well, like, Peppermint they and have technically the, the, the songs that, that encompass both Peppermint and Smeared are were all recorded kind of in the same sessions, you know, like over the for course of weeks and months, whenever they could get into Terry's place to record. Um, so they're all from the same pool. I believe, Ken, correct me if I'm wrong, Underwhelmed is the only re-record which I yes. think happens closer to the end of the process. And I read songs like the one you mentioned, Ken, at like Torn as maybe an earlier song idea, or at least something that was a little more extreme on the outer edges, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that maybe is why it didn't make the cut. It could have also been a length thing. Pretty Voice, I think perhaps maybe Jay just liked Lemon Zinger and Wester to decide more. They, they, they had more to, you know, maybe the song has got too many rockers already. We'll just leave Pretty Voice off in favor of something that's a little more subdued, a little more Bloody Valentine on the low end. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of how I read the songwriting or the song selection there. Uh, sorry, Greg, you were saying. No, no, I was, I was saying to, um, you know, since – because uh, as far as I know, they didn't have a demo tape, right? Like they didn't, they, the, the first thing most people heard was, I know Underwhelmed is originally on like a comp, right? Like it was on some comp first, yeah. right. but as far yeah. as the actual like Sloan product, yeah. Peppermint was, you know, basically their demo. Mm-hmm. I mean, Correct. as far like, I mean, that's how I think of it in like being in a band and in, in punk hardcore, it's like, it's kind of, that was their opening. That was the way probably to get gigs. Yeah. You know, we have this or whatever, you know, hopefully get someone to put out stuff. But um, yeah, I always tend to think the songs that they don't re-record probably to me mean that they might've been older songs. Cause I'm sure you guys have been in bands, you know what it's like. Like a lot of times you get maybe sick of the older songs. You think, ah, we're writing better songs now. Like you said, for all we know, they were, Jay was like, Hey, what's there to decide? I like this more than, yeah. uh, than, uh, what was it? Pretty, uh, I'm so pretty bad voice, with titles, yeah. uh, than pretty voice. So if I have to choose one of my tracks to go on this newer one, I like more, I don't know. I don't know. You'd have to ask Jay, right? But and, and maybe you could even uh, argue that you know songs like Lemon Singer and Western to Decide, if, if you think under the rubric of what they're doing, which is they're trying to be like a My Bloody Valentine sort of like uh, you know that sort of sound. If they're going for that sort of shoegaze sound, I would say that those, the songs that made it onto the full length are more indicative of what they maybe liked yeah. of those songs. Yeah. Uh, and sure. really, when you talk about Peppermint, they're really just cutting two songs. It's just Pretty Voice and Torn. 
the rest of it's all there. And like I was just saying, my theory on underwhelmed is, is Nirvana explodes, as you said, Greg, during this period. And as they're preparing the record, they just steer right into what's happening. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's like, um, you know, this, this musical phenomenon is occurring and they go, you know, the light bulb goes off, goes off of their head and they just steer right into what is currently happening in number one in the world. Um, and they just go there. And so they take a song that's maybe a little more avant-garde and a little more Minutemen sounding, and they just give it a driving beat. They harmonize the whole time. There's a tambourine in there the whole time. And, um, you know, for a song like Underwhelmed, I mean, we're obviously talking about the record. We can start off with that song, get into it a little bit. But yeah. like I was saying earlier, you you line this up. It's incre- incredible to me that these dudes who are in their fucking early 20s, okay, they've all been in a few bands, but this is sort of the current one. Even the earlier bands, there's nothing that compares to this stuff. You know what I mean? Mm. Like this comes out of nowhere and they're not playing music like anybody else. They're, they are completely peerless in Halifax at this point. They're completely peerless in Canada, at least, and probably North America to some extent. Cause if you look at some of the other artists, like you can even throw Nirvana's early shit in there and the my bloody Valentine stuff at the time, this record, like no wonder it was a bellwether for them. It fucking yeah. kills that stuff. The my yeah. bloody Valentine stuff, even I was listening to it, um, last night like those first eps and it's a little sort of ramshackle setting and there's a charm to that you know for sure but Mm -hmm. um smear it sounds like a hot is like pistol hot you know what i mean it's so fucking tight the performing is incredible cut me off oh i was gonna say uh lucky for me also wasn't re-recorded i'm sorry you're right right lucky for Uh, but but i think yeah, that's, that's the thing is like, I don't, I don't necessarily know that they would have heard, like seen Nirvana and been like, we're like consciously make that decision. I mean, we can, we can speculate, you know, that's the fun I think of being a fan. But um, I also just think that uh, it's not like, it definitely doesn't sound like my bloody Valentine Jr., for sure. Cause already, yeah. like you mentioned the, the vocal harmonies, my buddy, I mean, shoegaze, the whole thing was that the vocals are buried in the mix. And I mean, underwhelmed, those vocals aren't buried in the mix at all. It's, it's like, there's the, the all the harmonies, there's the hooks. Yeah. Um, I, think, I think like the, my bloody Valentine stuff, that's Jay. That's like, Jay is doing loveless with lemon singer. And that's that's pretty much for me the moment. And then other than that, I think you can hear that like the grunge that Sloan is presenting is more in the direction of shoegaze than the grunge that Pearl Jam would be presenting. But sure. you know, but it's it's still not uh, it's not derivative or something of that. But also, I feel like sometimes stuff happens where they're just drawing from the same influences as the other people that they end up sounding like. So like with a band like Sloan, um, you know, they, it wasn't like they were saying, Oh, we want to sound like my, I mean, I'm sure they were, like I said, they're influenced by my bloody Valentine, but I hear like some dinosaur junior, which dinosaur junior was a direct influence on my bloody Valentine and on shoegaze, yeah. you know, the loud guitars, but still the melody. And honestly, like to me, I feel like even if I didn't know their history, I can tell that uh, like at least some of these guys came from hardcore. 
100%. like from from punk and hardcore. Whereas like yep. my bloody Valentine, not really. Like that, you know, they were into Husker Du, and because yeah. Husker Du is another one that kind of predated shoegaze with the the birds cover you know they did and the white hot guitar um but like to me sloan has that and that's what maybe could make him similar to nirvana because you got to think nirvana especially when they got Grohl, they got a guy that literally played in a band on discord like it's a dude from hardcore yeah and and here's my here's my argument for them kind of leaning into Nirvana a little bit. Obviously, they're the biggest band in the world at the time. They do lift the aneurysm intro for Underwhelmed. <clears throat> like I think that build that occurs in Underwhelmed in the that's a complete lift, right? So uh, I, I think there's that, and then also the fact that they're I mean, and maybe there's a bit of an influence here, but they're also at the time crawling all over each other on stage. They're flailing around, you know, like you know the per- the performance of the actual song is like. Fourth on the list, you know, to jumping around, looking cool, smashing your shit, whatever, right? So there's a little bit in common there. But I mean, you mentioned the vocals a second ago, Greg. And I think for journalists and people at the time, it's easy to just kind of go like, oh, this band's really big. There's an element of these guys that's like those guys. Oh, they're Canada's Nirvana. That's just sort of an easy comparison to make. Yeah. And I think for journalists and you know music reviewers, it was kind of just an easy out, you know, because um, sure. Sloan, don't, Sloan don't sound like Nirvana at all, you know, um, and vocally, especially I, I want to touch on this because um, the vocals obviously are completely different between the two bands. And, and again, coming back to the fact that these guys are in their early 20s with some pretty seriously complex, like they know what they're doing vocally. And I don't know, some bands go through their entire career without reaching a pinnacle of vocal harmony and ability at this level. These guys are in their early 20s. I don't know how they were doing it, whether they were doing like one, three, five on a piano to figure it out, you know, but these, these harmonies, you know, through the, you know, that lower register harmony and underwhelmed. And I could go through the whole thing, 500 up, like some of the harmonies on this are just insane. And it's that sugar that's occurring over like a really rocking song, you know, that makes it so unique. Well, and it's also journalists, I think, are sometimes super lazy um, with no. like how, how they how they uh, quantify and explain things. Hmm. Because, yeah, at the end of the day, sure, slow, this record and Nirvana are the same in that it's loud, crunchy guitars, but with like pop sensibility. Yeah. And when we say pop, you know, we're talking about like the Beatles and stuff, not Snap or CNC Music Factory or whatever. Right. I think at the very least, John Cicada, but um, I think (laughs) that, Hey, I didn't want to say it. Um, The, we talked about, you know, the boys being young and having been in other bands before. And certainly, you know, Chris was in Blackpool pretty much when this was being recorded and he was doing double duty and, and shit like that. But, you know, I think that the, standout factor and the big difference between the formula that they would have had in Sloan at this point in time and that they might have had that Chris might have had in Blackpool at a year earlier or Patrick and Happy Co is what we've been talking about. It's on the one hand, this undeniable chemistry between Chris and Patrick and the super voice where they kind of found that they meld well together and that Patrick understands harmonies really well, which is something that Chris didn't have in KL. He didn't have a sparring partner in KLR to do these interwoven, you know, incredibly catchy harmonies with. Uh, And the secret sauce 
And we hear both of these elements, by the way, on smeared in an embryonic way. They're not fully developed, but the second factor is Andrew. Andrew's got not just the drummer, but Andrew's got the songwriter is 100% evident on smeared. Uh, and if you think about the two contributions that Andrew has to the album, Median Strip and 500 Up, those are the two, like, in terms of songwriting style that stand out from the rest of the band, from my perspective, those are the two songs that give it a little bit of an edge that other groups don't have, where you can't say, like, oh, yeah, okay, so they're doing a little bit of Nirvana. It's a little bit, you know, more uh, Canadian-style grunge with, a, you know, sweeter lyrics uh, and harmonies. And, okay, they've got this kind of My Bloody Valentine guy who does his his, his sweet-voiced whatever, Um you know, 500 Up and Median Strip are the two tracks on there that kind of take you for a spin uh, after obviously underwhelmed. So the components of what makes Sloan great today and what have made them great throughout their 32 years are all there. But it's notable that there are ups and downs. And I think, you know, as we get into the songs, we'll, we'll, we'll talk about this. But I personally am not a huge fan of when Chris does this kind of like twee voice that you can hear, for example, on take it in or like, you know, the, the it's um, for lack of a better term, a little bit whiny. Um, you can tell that he hasn't really hit his vocal stride yet. Um, and at the same time, Andrew, his drumming is incredible, but he hasn't found like his signature style yet. That won't come really until Octa, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, and to kind of jump in there to, to talk on a couple of things that you mentioned, Ken, um, you know, th- there is there are elements of Carney Lake Road, like you mentioned in Chris's vocals there, like he kind of has that sort of syrupy wine a little bit going on in KLR. Um, but on the whole, and I, th- I think when you look at a song like, um, you know, Take It In, as you mentioned, I think that's a, 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 um, a relic. You know, something that is is already out of style by the time that this record is is finished recording, because it doesn't really occur that much throughout the rest of the record. The amount of growing up that these guys do between their earlier projects and this one is insane. You know, like um, there aren't harmonies elsewhere, like you said earlier in in their earlier work that are at this level. Uh, The songwriting is just a, a mega jump way up. Yeah, you listen to the other bands that these guys were in, and they just sound like they're great, but they just sound like you know the regular bands that anybody else would have been in. And and I don't know if if I just feel that way because this record is so impactful and I'm so familiar with it. But I mean, God, I feel like I I, I love those YouTube videos where they take like a group of guys today and they listen to something from like 20 or 30 years ago, and they're all huddled around the camera, and you see the reaction to something that we all know. You know, I would love for, to for one of them groups to do like underwhelmed you know because i feel like it's a song that anybody could hear now you know 30 years later and, and for the first time it just be like whoa like that's impressive you know um, and, and the the lyrics are great oh i yeah, mean absolutely like that's the that's usually the track i'll send people first even though it's not necessarily my favorite sloan song i think sure. it's the perfect introduction but also this style on smeared, I don't know if it's a cyclical thing. It's super popular right now. So like there's this record label called run for cover and they put out a lot of those. Like it's like hardcore kids that now play shoegaze. Right. 
and I'm, uh, half the time I hear, I'm just like, they're just trying to sound like, like smear did this 30 years ago better. Um, so it's just kind of funny to see like the style has kind of endured. Whereas maybe it would sound if you, you know, 15 years ago, someone might've said this sounds dated. And now it's like there's bands that are filling up, you know, decent sized clubs playing, you know, in my opinion, an inferior version of smeared. And my question would be of these bands that you're talking about, do they have the sort of musical prowess that these guys had in their early twenties? I mean, can you mention about Andrew's drumming and he certainly does come into his own later, like when he's sort of mimicking Murph, mimicking Supergrass, uh, he, then he makes it kind of his own. He puts like power and finesse behind it. But there is, I want to say listening to this again this week, really active listening to the drums in my head, you know, when I was younger and just listening to these songs and not really paying attention, I just imagined that the drums were just like a, a wash of just garb- gobbledygook the whole time, that he's just kind of playing as fast and as crazy as he can. But there's a lot of intention when you really listen, and he's he's being very careful about what he's playing. Yeah. Um, so for a guy... Wasn't he only playing for a few months, too, at this point or yeah, something like I, that? I, I don't have the well, exact time, because he would have had drums around. Like, his dad had was a drummer and had drums around, so he would have probably tinkered you know? Um, but in terms of like actively playing, I mean, he's certainly also a guitar player and he's got a lot on his plate. He's, he's painting, he's doing different things. So I don't think he was actively potentially playing drums as much as he then eventually would. Um, and I think we've heard stories about Chris kind of mentoring him a little bit in the, on the drums. And then Andrew essentially kind of takes over and, you know, doesn't best him because they're both like, just like equals. Those guys are just both two like incredible equal powerhouses. They both do their own thing, but, um, yeah, most bands don't have one good drummer. These guys have two excellent. I know top it's not really fair. Legendary drummers. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's not fair in the slightest bit. Um, but and and, and like, you know, in, in, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say to answer your question, there's, um, yeah, as far as musicality, no, because I think a lot of them are missing that that harmony. Mm-hmm. The harmony part is key, and also, yeah. um, a lot of those bands have only one songwriter. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there is, there's one band I'll mention that I do think is great. They, well, I should say were, I, I don't think they're active anymore. And they came from hardcore and they started off playing like, you know, just fast punk rock, hardcore, and eventually really leaned into the shoegaze thing. And that's a band from, they're from uh, Pennsylvania, but not Philly. They're called title fight. And they did a record called Hyperview that was on anti which is like epitaphs like other arm or whatever and they have two songwriters uh so two different singers and they did do the style very very well like they were great great live same type of energy as like you were saying with those early sloan shows where it's like even though the guy's playing and singing at the same time like they're going you know nuts Right. But there's a lot of other bands then that sort of just sound like a watered down version of that and are popular. But I digress. Do we want to do we want to take some time and like dive into the songs? Does that Why don't we sense? do that? I, I want to make one we... I want to make one note before we do that too. It's something to keep in mind this entire time is that for that first year, Patrick was 
playing bass at least 50% of the time. And Chris mm-hmm. was on guitar, uh, yeah. which is why we get the hilarious credit for Chris on the record of erased guitar, uh, which mm-hmm. we then eventually hear on the underwhelmed original recording uh, reissue uh, that came out uh, just within the past couple of years that uh, the, the, uh, the B-sides one, The right? B-sides yeah. collection. Correct. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just something to mention. I mean, th- there are a number of X factors occurring here. One of them, again, being that Patrick's on bass. And I was going to say, uh, 500 Up has found its way into the set list. They've been playing it pretty much every show for the past couple of mm-hmm. years. Um, and I was just saying, and I love that Jay plays bass. He plays the solo and everything. It's or not the solo, but that bass part in the middle. Um, I would love one time for him to give the bass to Patrick and Patrick give him the guitar because they can both play both instruments. And for one time, Patrick play that 500 up bass like he did in 92 or 93 or whatever it was. Exactly. That's Patrick. So, um, and again, nobody, no, who was doing that? You know what I'm saying? Like, that's what I'm saying. Like Chili my blood, my bloody Valentine don't have a song with that kind of bass in it. Flea was doing that. It was Blood Sash Sugar Magic. Blood Sugar Sash Magic. I always get the order. Get, and the, get the um, title right. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, Pat, Flea could play something like that. But I think, like, the, the, the you know, I know you're kind of joking, but the, the Patrick part on 500 Up is, is way more tasteful than anything that Chili Peppers ever would do. Um, but right. anyway, blah, blah, blah. I just wanted to throw that X factor in there, too, just to kind of make it known. Um, but, but Patrick is playing bass for this for at least... A, half of the recording of this record they were flipping back and forth so something to bear mm-hmm. in mind but yeah why don't we jump in jump into it there ken yeah man underwhelmed i mean we've we've talking at length about talking we've talked at length about this uh about this track over the history of our podcast i think it's you know undeniable that this uh this song would become not a hit it didn't become a hit that would be exaggerating it but it became their trademark song and in many ways it is still their trademark song and it's no uh coincidence that this is the song to lead off their their initial album i mean what what else are you going to do when sequencing smeared other than putting underwhelmed at number 1 it, for me it's it's so and I, I know that we've had guests on the podcast who have spoken about this, but there are a few instances, I think, in in my very narrow understanding of rock history in which you can kind of smell the greatness happening from song one. You know, if you think about bands who have put out a double-digit number of albums over the course of their career or, like, even just a handful of albums, in very few cases that I'm aware of, are you able to sense the greatness right off the bat. I mean, maybe not right off the, the Ebo when the Ebo comes in and there's that droning notice. Like, I don't know that that's great, but as soon <clears throat> at the very least, as soon as they hit tempo and as soon as Andrew, the drum kicks fill. in that drum fill, it's like super, Jesus super Christ. voice, super voice you know, kicks in and then it's over. Right. It's sort of like there. And I feel like Jay will appreciate this comparison in a weird way, but it's like their radio free Europe. Right. Like, like it has a lot of, it has a lot of similarity one in that it was released prior to the debut album, but in a different, uh, you know, different session, but that it has all the hallmarks of what made REM REM on the first song on their first album. And I feel that way about underwhelmed. It has everything that's there. Um, 
it doesn't mean they didn't mature and grow and become even better songwriters, but it was all there right from the jump in underwhelmed. Perfect song. Couldn't have said it better, man. You nailed it with that REM comparison. Like, I mean, they, they, you know, a lot of bands first records and then like Ken was just saying, a lot of the greats, like you can say, you can kind of smell that greatness early on, but so many bands who go on to greatness, their first records kind of like the shitty one, you know, it's like, well, there's Mm -hmm. that first one. There's, you know, Pablo honey or whatever it is. Um, (laughs) But in this case, the only difference with the first record is it is just different. It's just, it's, it's, it's more kind of tied to its time. Um, you know, it's what they were doing at the time. And just, you know, within the next year or two, they're going to be completely timeless with twice removed, which is a com- mm. totally crazy to think about to go from one to the other. But, um, but that's really the only thing that kind of hold that, that holds it apart is that it just sounds different. It's produced different, you know, like the songwriting's there, the harmony's there, the humor is there, the playing is there. Uh, and I'm glad you mentioned the Ebo a second ago, Ken, because that's another one of those funny X factors that exists. You know, it's one of the difference makers between the original recording and the second, you know, hearing that Ebo played on a bass, which I think Terry Pulliam kind of gave us the Iggy to was, yeah. um, you know, it's a, just a really classic. It's a really unique sound. And as soon yeah. as you turn that track on, it's like, oh, you know exactly what it is. Yeah. Um, and another fun thing, too, that I noticed when I was listening is um, there's a delay guitar going on, I think, in the chorus. Some sort of pedal, like a sound. And even and I hadn't noticed this, but even some of the recordings of the band within the past six months, their live show, there's a recording of somebody right in front of Jay and you hear through his, you hear his, his amp really playing that part. Like that, it's still there. You know, here we are all mm-hmm. these years later, those elements yeah. are still in the mix. It's not as though they've, they've completely restructured it for the live setting. You know, there are certain yeah. things that, that have restructured, but um, so yeah, incredible song off the top of the album. What else can you say about this? That hasn't already been like, said, you know? Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, the lyrics make me laugh every time i listened to it I, I played it you know this morning to to prep for everything and just i mean it, I, I hate i don't want to throw this it's it's genius it's just i i love it i mm-hmm. i i i love it i love you know and the the line about um you know we were talking about people that eat meat and then just how it all drops everything drops out when he says i felt like i just ate my young that's that's genius Mm -hmm. well it's one of the only cases in which the chris wrote the words before the music if not the only case right and i think that you know that when when he says that in a self-deprecating way that he kind of suggests that maybe he doesn't feel as though the music is up to snuff but in this case i feel as though he's proving that he can write a great song regardless of whether the musical seed is planted first and then he wraps words around that, or he has essentially a poem, mm. which he puts music to, you know, which is which is the case for Underwhelmed. I don't know why it wasn't a huge hit, honest. I I I really don't. In a in a just world, it would have been like I said, like sort of like how maybe it wouldn't have propelled them to superstardom and and all that. But I think it at least would have been like. You know, I mentioned the, that Flaming Lips song. She don't use jelly. Was it? That was a hit. It was like on regular MTV. I don't know why this wasn't. 
Yeah, they were only on MTV, I think, twice officially. Um, we posted one of the times recently on Instagram where Henry Rollins was hosting and uh, they played it. But um, yeah. It's, and he it's, likes it's, it, right? And he liked it. He, he actually commented after the video. He was like, I, I rather like that one, you know, and, and you don't have to, you know, I'm sure they didn't have to pay Rollins to say that. I'm sure he meant it. But, um, you know, back to what Ken was saying a second ago. It was, I mean, t- technically though, Greg, I mean, the song was a hit in Canada. Like there was, a, it was a big video. It was on the radio everywhere. It was definitely their calling card. Um, it brought a lot of eyes to them. Um, so in that regard, it was a, a success. I don't know why, you know, it wasn't pushed in the States as much. It's sort of an anomaly as far as I'm concerned. Like they're on Geffen. They're making inroads. Like you've got the compilation there. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, and, and I think it was Murph or somebody talked about, um, in an article, you know, that, that they were, that they were friendly with the MTV people and they're like, Oh God, we, we would love to play this every day, but we are kind of bound to, you know, the agreements that they've made with other record labels and we've got to play this one and that one. And so it wasn't a matter of, they wanted to play it so they could, it was a matter of we're kind of, our hands are tied a little bit here and it's a little political maybe. Um, I think it's, it's the Canadian thing, sadly. Yeah, like could be. I, I don't think, I don't think that that's right. Uh, or I think it's frankly like pretty stupid of a thing, but I think if they would have been from New York city, I don't know, maybe, maybe it would have been viewed. You know, again, we're, we're, it's like Monday morning quarterback, Mm -hmm. but like to, to kind of look back, but I, I, I was just thinking this earlier, like, yeah, if they were from Seattle or New York city Mm -hmm. or somewhere hip, there's a reason why Sloan has remained kind of, well, maybe successful is too generous, but how they've remained relevant in U.S. college radio is because the values that college students place on music are different than the values that the U.S. mainstream market as a whole places on their music consumption. And Canadian artists kind of fit the bill a little bit better. There's if you think about how Sloan is built and, 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 and how they approach songwriting and how they approach, especially lyrical content, there's always a little bit of a sense of inferiority complex, humility, uh, humor, tongue in cheekness going on in the lyrical content in a song like underwhelmed. That's, that, that's the entire lyrical content. Um, it's not this big, you know, braggadocious, swaggery kind of like it, it, I, my, one of my things is maybe this is my Canadian heritage or whatever. Um, I, I can't stand people and musicians and music who take themselves too seriously. Right. And Sloan is, as far as I'm concerned, the greatest band of all time. They don't take themselves too seriously. Like they're up for a joke. All four of them are hilarious funny individuals, you know, with with down to earth, great senses of humor. As much as I know that you guys, you know, revere Nirvana, Kurt Cobain was a fucking asshole. Like he was not a nice dude. You know, you couldn't meet up with Kurt after a show and shoot the shit about, you know, the tour or whatever like that, that that's something that's a quality that, you know, I think in many ways, and it's not just Sloan, there are a lot of bands who are like this and a lot of musicians who approach kind of their songwriting in this 
in, in this sort of way. So that's a tough sell, I think, for the U.S. market in many ways. Not not a huge, not a tough sell for college radio because college kids, in 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 a lot of regards, that's their mindset. They're going, they're a little bit awkward. They're going through life, you know, trying trying to figure things out, and they f- might feel inferior in some ways, and they can identify with the lyrics of underwhelmed or our next song raspberry which is like the you know the same thing i i think the thing is too that maybe what people liked about nirvana though was was the 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 mystery and the the broodiness of kurt cobain now i'll have to disagree i don't think he was an asshole i never met him but i think that he was a person that had a lot of problems and was in this position where you literally go from just being borderline homeless to being the most famous person in the world. Couple that with, you know, undiagnosed depression and drug use and all this. It's a, just a cocktail for disaster, right? Like, so, I mean, Sure. I mean, that, you know, there, 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 I think if you put it that way, there are probably very few true assholes in the world, right? Like everybody has their, their problems. Right. What, I, what so I'm I, saying is like, but is, I know is I, Kurt, I, Co- is Kurt I, Cobain approachable like Chris Murphy? Is he approachable like Patrick Pentland even? Like, is that. And Chris, Chris talked in that, I might've mentioned it the last time I was on, but he talked about in that turned out a punk interview with Damien from fucked up about how when he met Ian Mackay, he was like, you know, that's kind of how I want to conduct myself. Like Ian Mackay, I mean, Fugazi were huge despite not being on the radio. I mean, they played clubs here, you know, and I'm sure there that were three, 4,000 cap, maybe even more, you know, packed places. And yeah, Ian would be approachable. And I think Chris kind of took that also from, punk the problem is when you reach a certain level no matter who you are you just can't you can't be that way right like like dave grohl seems like a cool guy but he's not going to be hanging at the merch stand after foo fighters play you know what i mean but um yeah i i don't know why because i love the humor because i agree i think all you know the best band like i'm as you Guys, know I'm a huge fan of the replacements, and the replacements had that humor and that self-deprecating, uh, you know, attitude and stuff. And I, I think that stuff's great. Maybe because I'm personally also just a person that uh, uses black humor a lot or dark humor, whatever the right term is, to kind of soothe myself when things are going terribly and you know i don't take myself too seriously and i uh also am very self-deprecating so i also love that quality um in in a rock band me too i'll say this as somebody who's not necessarily a record industry insider although i was i've worked at a couple of smaller labels uh they'll tend to kind of throw everything at the wall and, you know, and like one out of a hundred things sticks and that's the one that they kind of go with and it funds everybody else's <clears throat> fun. Um, and, and maybe Sloan were, uh, uh, you know, a part of that, you know, it, it just sort of, it was just something that didn't strike uh, the same way. And like you were saying earlier, maybe there was just like, you know, like the, these other bands have like a character to them or they're, they're, there's, they're, they're druggies and they're in the headlines all the time. Who knows, you know, but um regardless i remember what i was going to say before uh and that is that 
uh, you talked, Greg, a moment ago about how you know the great the greatness of in the song. The song kind of stops, and he says the line. Uh, there's there's such a huge leap, like we were saying, between the first version of Underworld and this one. It's almost the same way, and Chris is going to like this. The way like a comedian works, like they kind of work on a song, like you iron a shirt. You know, you're kind of just working on it over here, fixing it over here, and with that first recording occurring. They ha- they kind of got a do over with this version that appears on the record, you know, and they kind of they, it's almost as if they and I've been in bands and stuff and like you have a song and then let's do like a really crazy version of it where we just throw everything at it, you know, the in the kitchen sink. So the under one that appears here to me is like them just ramping it up like way up. Let's do a crazy version of our song and then that kind of becomes the version, you know, like let's put stops in it and you know this and that and so that's kind of how I read the second version of Underwhelmed. Um and I want to speak to again the the drums for a second. Um, because Andrew had a front row seat to Dave Grohl. He's told the story, uh, I think it was with us, uh, in either the late 80s or early yeah. 90, he sees Dave Grohl with Scream at the Rivoli in Toronto, which is a teeny tiny place uh, for all the kids in the hall fans out there. Um, so he kind of got a glimpse of what that dude was all about firsthand, you know, like giant rack tom, massive mm-hmm. fucking 24-inch, all the symbols are 24 inches. Uh, he's sitting on the floor, you know, like, so he saw that firsthand and, and then all of a sudden that dude he saw is now in the biggest band of all time, you know? So there's, it's, it's easy to kind of pinch that influence a little bit. So anyway, yeah, hundred percent. Shall we, uh, motor on to our next track raspberry, um, which for me is like the moment where, you know, like, okay, so this is their debut album. They don't have everything in line quite yet. This is for me, like one of, one of the relics, as you put it, Rob, of, kind of their earlier days, potentially a song that had existed prior to Sloan. Um, I think, you know, the, the the notable thing for me here, and this is what I mentioned before, is that Chris's vocal tone is not the vocal tone that Chris would be uh, exhibiting sure. in later albums. Like, this is something that I think he dropped at the very latest following Twice Removed. So Ra- mm-hmm. Raspberry for me is like the turner where you kind of notice, okay, well, there's they're still kind of revving up here. And, and it might be worth mentioning, and you can kind of speak to this kind of a little bit. Patrick has talked about the Boss Heavy Metal HM2 pedal, which he describes yeah. as the sound of Smeared, you know. Um, and I think you hear it on display. This is sort of the first time on the record that you really hear it. Mm-hmm. Um, as sort of like a, with, with all of the screaming guitar parts between the vocals. Um, so do you have anything to say about that? Like any, any intel on that? Uh, no, I think that this is, uh, as you said, Exhibit 1A of, of, of the Boss Heavy Metal pedal. Um, it's, it's certainly also, you know, a song where that they're, they're taking the, the loud, quiet grunge cliche and kind of testing its limits um, yeah. with not just loud, quiet, but the interjections of these hyper loud guitars during the quiet part too. Um, so, you know, it's, it's interesting. It certainly is something that for me doesn't stand up the test of time as much as other tracks on this album. And, you know, I think one of, one of the reasons for that is there's this, and I can picture actually, if you look at early, early video footage of the band and they're all wearing these giant baggy t-shirts and they're kind of, Chris does this thing where he's, 
he's standing in front of the microphone almost motionless and it looks like he's about to fall asleep almost like he's got his eyes closed and he's singing really softly and this is like one of the songs where you know he's singing so softly that it's like are you gonna fall asleep here or what's going on i think that like chris's thing there is probably just like a I'm going to be quiet so that you'll pay attention kind of thing. Like, uh, or man, maybe he's just having kind of fun with the way that the song sounds and he's finding his foot as a, as his feet as a performer. Cause I, but prior to this, I'm trying to think, I mean, unless he was, he wasn't playing drums in the in the bands with Andrew prior to Sloan, but he hasn't really been a front man yet. You know what I mean? Like in, in mm. a real sense, like he was a bass player in the early punk stuff. He's a drummer in Carney Lake road. And it's hard to be the lead guy from the drums, to be honest, you know, I mean, anyway, but um, I'm sure that personality was there, but this is probably, and in, 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 you mentioned Blackpool, he's a bass player, he's to the side, you know, this is probably his first time center stage, you know, so he's kind of finding himself in that way. But uh, yeah, this song is for sure, like a, potentially a remnant of earlier songs or they're sort of finding you know what they want to sound like and i want to i want to mention there was something that chris mentioned one time where he was saying about the songs as they progressed in the writing process where they sort of had the idea of okay we're going to put this shoegaze my bloody valentine kind of sheen we're going to just apply certain rules to these songs you know and, and this kind of falls in line with what we were saying in the action-packed episodes where you know jay kind of got the brief and fell in line with what Patrick and kind of Chris were doing where they decided, okay, we've got all these songs and we're just going to apply these rules to them. You know, this is the sound of the guitar. This is the sound of the drums and how the, you know, it's going to be flowery vocals. And he mentioned there was a time in Andrew's room. And I don't know if it was just him and Andrew or the all four guys or whatever, where they started applying these sort of rules, if you will, the brief to the songs that they had. And it started to click like, ah, there it is. There's that thing. And it's this sound. You know what I mean? Like there's that sound that's going to kind of dictate how the rest of this album goes. And however these songs occurred earlier in their earlier incarnations, we're going to run them through this brief and they'll all come out the other side sounding like they should all fit on the same record. You know, that's sort of my take on it. Do, am I wrong in the, do, does, do they not like this song? I feel like I read or does someone not like it? who knows i mean like chris said on his episode on the last episode they've only got so much space in a live show for what they're going to play you know so i mean i don't know the last time they played raspberry live it was definitely in the (laughs) 90s for sure um it didn't even make its its way onto four nights and that was like a triple record triple live record um there are some early evidences as we've seen of them playing it at the time for sure i mean they Mm -hmm. only had so many songs and they had to fill time so um i don't know if there's occurrence of somebody saying they absolutely hate it um but i mean you can bet money that there are members in the band who deeply dislike certain songs in the discography so i wouldn't be surprised Mm -hmm. sure makes i mean that's the way it happens right when when you're the in the band you're gonna have your own takes and a lot of times what your take is and what the fan take is is not the same yeah so it makes sense but i think i think it's a cool but it, it definitely does it doesn't necessarily have anything like if this was the first Sloan song somebody heard, sure. They'd probably be like, Oh, this is cool. Like I'll put it on a mixtape or something. It's a great second song. It sounds great. If nothing else, you know, there's a lot of great sounds going on. And for somebody who is into this style of music at the time, you go from song one to song two and you're like, yeah, fuck. Yeah. You know, but great. it's also sandwiched in between two killer songs. That's it. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing too. I mean, like it's hard to, 
to, to, to describe Raspberry as like not as great. It's just in the company here with just some fucking legendary tunes. It's the one, it's, it's one of the ones that's perhaps not mentioned or talked about, you know, they don't really play it. Um, so give it. I like due. it. Yeah, it's doing its job. It's sounding great amongst its peers, um, but there are just some absolute home runs. One of them being the next song we're about to talk about. Ken, go. Sure. <laughs> I am the cancer is the one for me that is most indicative, kind of of the development of songwriting, especially f- for Chris. And I know that I am the cancer is something that he'd had in his pocket prior to Sloan or at the gestation of Sloan. And so you can kind of tell even at a specific point in time that Chris is writing songs that are up to par with later Chris and will stand the test of time. And he has some that maybe he's not quite sure about, but he's, you know, letting, letting come to fruition anyway. So I am the cancer is the one for me also that, that I think makes a really interesting case for, looking at how it's been recorded and performed over the years because the I am the cancer on smeared is the grungeified I am the cancer which is you know really a wash in it's 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 like they got the the JMC production crew to just like barf all over the song um and I know that that was intention but when you hear when you hear the I am the cancer on the four nights uh yeah. disc or you know the 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 even better example is the "I Am the Cancer" that they did for the um, for the party album. Oh, so you know, good! Fuck the 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 malleability of the lyrical content of the melodies of the uh, chord progression into a much sweeter style, or even just as a straight up rocker like the how they do it on 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 the Four Nights disc. You know, it goes to show you how how well this song is written. Um, I I would venture to say, and this is maybe just because I'm not a huge like grunge guy. Like I would venture to say that it's almost a shame that the album version is as fuzzed out as it is. However, I think in the context of the rest of the album, it fits really well. And what it does is it gives us this really kind of interesting. It's for it's a forebear of what's to come so even though we're looking at it from the lens of you know i got into sloan in octa so i had to rediscover these albums i think i even bought smeared maybe after navy blues or something so i had to rediscover these albums from a later perspective even even then you kind of understand like yeah these are these are the things that make the sloan dna great right and it's all evident in this song what do you think, Greg? Like, as soon as you put on I Am The Cancer, like, there's there's that growl of distortion in guitars. There's no counting, and suddenly you're just, like, experiencing a double vocal onslaught. The music is just so thick. I want to give a shout-out to album MVP, Chris Murphy prom date, and jail band member Jennifer Pierce, um, who sings a little bit on this record. She's on Twice Removed as well. <clears throat> I believe she's at the, in the party album. Uh, it is. It's just Patrick and Chris. I she, think, was Pat, she was Patrick's girlfriend at that point too, right? Right. Yeah. And he's got in that first much music appearance. He's got Jenny written on his guitar, which is the same Jenny that Chris was writing about on the hardcore song on the seven inch. Uh, yeah. She, yeah. She's that's her picture on the inside of the seven inch, and she joined Andrew on his Andrew Scott is terrified uh, show last year, uh, his show from home, and they sang together. So so she's and an she, MVP. And she fucking, was in the band 
you said jail j-a-l-e right on sub pop correct yeah murder records alum sub pop um and how great does her voice sound with chris i mean we we talk a lot about the way patrick and chris have the super voice but man she she really sounds great with him and so yeah first impressions for you greg like i mean this song kicks in and it's like you want to go into a trance or something it's just like rattling it's it's a pop song though to me still, you know what I yeah, mean? It's just yeah, a totally. really cool, weird pop song. And I mean, it's, it's no surprise that this was also a single, right? Like, is there's a, which I don't, I don't have that. There's, I think there's 12 a 12 inch. inch. Yeah. Right. Um, of yeah. this. It's got and, the lame, um, lame blame and, uh, and, uh, what should we call it on <laughs> as the, as the B sides. Oh, yeah. 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 They're, they're both on the ragdoll. Yeah. Ragdoll. Okay. I was going to say pillow fight, but I think pillow, pillow fight was the underwhelmed. on the underwhelmed. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, this is, this is awesome. And yeah, the way the voices blend together, five stars. And Ken, why don't we go through the lyrics of it here? Because we've, we've received some information over the past couple of years. I think Intel. Was, some Intel. I think it was either on one of Chris's shows or something, mm. but, the Matthew uh, in question here, as we go through the names in the song, uh, is either debatably Matt or Matthew Murphy, who would go mm-hmm. on to be in Super Friends, Flashing Lights, Tons with Chris. Could also be a Matthew Grimson reference, perhaps mm-hmm. both. It's not exactly clear who he's speaking about. Uh, the Andrew is either or both Andrew Glencross, who's somebody who they knew who eventually moved to Montreal. Uh, it could also be obviously Andrew Scott, who's sure. playing drums in the band, but um, also going back and forth between Halifax and Toronto for much of the late eighties and early nineties. Yep. Uh, Allison is Allison McLeod, who is in jail as well. Um, and, uh, Scarecrow, Not prison, but the band, yeah. Right. She was, yeah, she was in, she did a little B and E. She was in and out. Uh, couldn't stay. Her record is her rap. sheet is just a mile long, but, uh, and Scarecrow is Jennifer Pierce, who is one of the vocalists yes. who we just mentioned. Um, so just to kind of get that out there, those are the people that they're referring to according to Murph. Yes. You're hip to the jive now or whatever. I don't know what people say. Um, <laughs> <laughs> is there, is there, is there anything else to, to add? Uh, what do we have next? Median Strip? Median, Median Strip is a song that I probably didn't like for a long time, but have grown to like more and more because of some of the... I, I, th- I think that what I find really compelling about Median Strip is that it's completely unlike any other song in the in the Sloan catalog. And I, when I said at the, at the onset, you know, there's two songs for me here that give the that give the album its its bite that give the album its pepper apart from underwhelmed which for me stands alone and is you know peppering everything um and 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 for me it's median strip and 500 up and if you listen to the drum pattern and if you listen to the syncopation of the 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 lyrics and uh even the lyrical cleverness this is andrew like this is 100 percent yeah andrew's doing he got chris to sing it or they decided themselves that chris would take over duties mm-hmm. um but the there's there's little gems in here like even name dropping glenn close in the lyric sheet you know it's 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 hilarious yeah i think there is a little bit of chris peppered in here too because i i remember getting some intel from him that the uh <clears throat> tone it down i'll be in the barrel line 
It's okay. a direct reference to uh, oh, what's the guy's name now? <laughs> You're gonna have to cut this out. Um, but the dude from Laverne and Shirley who played Squiggy in the the Lenny <laughs> and Squiggy combination. Uh, Squiggy, let me get his name. James, uh, I've, always, got I've, I've got it now. I, it's Michael. Michael McKeon is Lenny. Right, yeah. So on, on Laverne and Shirley, obviously, Michael McKean is, is Lenny, and James L. Lander is Squiggy. And Lander did some sort of stand-up. I've, I've looked all over the internet for this for months. I can't find it. Uh, I even downloaded from some website where you can pay to get old episodes of it. He hosted an evening at the Improv in 92, which kind of checks out year-wise. He doesn't say the fucking story, but apparently he's got some bit where he's a clown, in full clown makeup and he's talking to somebody like a Tammy Faye Baker or somebody with just like an outrageous amount of eye makeup. And he says the line about her makeup while he's in full clown makeup, maybe you should tone it down a bit, you know, tone it down. I'll be in the barrel, meaning like the clown barrel. So that's where that line is directly ripped from. I also thought <laughs> the uh, James L. Lander was also in a movie called Funland, uh, which I got on YouTube and watched most of hoping that line would be in there. And that was a giant waste of time. Uh, a movie from 1987. <laughs> So anyway, yeah, so that footage of Lander saying the line is still out there somewhere in the world. We'll find it at some point, but fuck. Anyway, so that's the story on that. So I think there are some Chris lines peppered in here. Uh, but like you said, it is fully an Andrew song. And uh, <clears throat> See, I didn't is- even know that until I, I was looking at the, uh, the Wikipedia breakdown. Because uh, to my knowledge, the record itself doesn't, doesn't break down whose song. I just – That's right. Since right. Andrew doesn't, since Andrew's not singing it, I, right? Like I guess I just never, never put two and two together until. And this was, was the to, record. What is it they say? I was today years old. <laughs> You're today years old, and this is the only record where that occurs, where the writer is not necessarily yeah. the singer. Um, you know, for the rest of the discography, it's quite evident if you're paying attention. But uh, yeah, this one's a tricky one. And the other funny thing that I, I recall getting from the man himself was that there is a version out there that exists where they tried Andrew as the vocalist, and he sang the entire song in his sort mm-hmm. of 500 uptone, sort of down <laughs> here. You know, <clears throat> um, I want to hear, and, and I think. And you know what? Maybe we'll, we'll we will definitely have to wait for the smeared 30th anniversary reissue for that. Uh, fingers crossed. Um, I definitely want to. Uh, you know, that. you can you can hear early, you can see early on that there was an effort to kind of kissify or Beatlesify the band, giving opportunities for other people to sing. You know, like here's a song that obviously he wrote, but you know, you should also sing it. And you know, it went back to Chris for whatever reason. But um, um, but yeah, even even in 500 Up, which is a song that's coming up, there's an effort to have as many people involved as possible. This isn't just as much as Murph is writing the lion's share of the record. There's a there's an effort here to feature everyone. You know, like you look mm-hmm. at Underwhelm, you look at 500 Up. Patrick is just as much a lead vocalist as Chris is in both examples. Mm-hmm. I wanted to add real quick. Uh, I looked up Jail, not the prison, but the band, and you can actually still get from sub pop for people that like phys- physical media, they both of their albums are still available on CD mm-hmm. and a seven inch. I found that interesting. So might, might have to, might have to investigate. Um, I have the Eric strip records, which I really like a lot, but nice. yeah, that was a, a, a digression, but not really. Cause it's, it's kind of all, 
related, you, right? You mentioned Eric's trip. I should say, I give a plug here for Rick White, who has a Bandcamp account. He's the lead singer, obviously, of Eric's trip and would go on to form Elevator, Elevator to Hell, so on. And he's been do- recording and putting out music this whole time. And he just put out a tribute to the Sadies. Um, uh, Dallas Good, obviously, passing away within the past year. And it's a fantastic record, his tribute to the Sadies. And he's got original Rick White stuff. He's, he's releasing old uh, Eric's trip stuff there. So for anybody out there who's into that stuff, you mentioned it. So I wanted to say Rick White on Bandcamp. Uh, he's got a ton of stuff available. Yeah, so Take It In, uh, our, our next track. I would be interested in potentially one of you guys leading on this one. Uh, for me, it's uh, I, I think it fits into A, I find it really interesting that this was a single, um, which it was. B, I find it very much fits into the uh, into the mold of Raspberry in both kind of lyrical content as well as the approach to shaping the song and the quiet loud. That's funny you mentioned that because I was going to say it's also like Raspberry in that it's sandwiched in between two, in my opinion, like stronger tracks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a but. I, but again, I like it. Yeah, it's a little sludgy. It's you know if I, you think about it, like a little yeah. I don't know. I, find, I, I kind of find it like this is just Drumming, my. Is it? I don't know. What's the right word? Yeah, but I, mean, I think like the thing. The thing that irks me about this track, and then I'll let you guys take over, is that I find it kind of awkward when the band gets like sexual. Well, speaking about the sexuality, I mean, like we got to remember these are, and it's not like it necessarily changes. You know, they're in their fifties now, but <clears throat> for guys in their early twenties, I mean, this is what you're kind of thinking about. You know what I mean? It's not like they're not thinking about it. Uh, and, and I go back to, you know, bands that I was in and saw in high school. I could completely imagine these lyrics coming from, from a band like that, you know, from this age. Oh, yeah. This, this, for sure, you know. <clears throat> so not necessarily surprised to hear it, you know. Uh, Put your lips on my back and lightly blow. Where does the warmness go? You know, like there's an intimacy there. Like he's talking about. You know, like certainly around this age, I was probably like pining for a girlfriend and somebody like Chris Murphy's doing all the stuff that, you know, a guy like me would be wishing they could do. Um, and that's kind of what this song sounds like to me a little bit. And you mentioned the sort of the quiet and the loud louds there, Greg. And, you know, maybe there's a bit of the dinosaur influence going on here with how sludgy and kind of heavy duty it gets mixed with the, how quiet it is. Um, but yeah. And like you said, it's, it's, I, I've always liked take it in. It's, it, again, it, like, it, like you were saying, it's, it, it suits the rest of the record. It fits in there. It's like raspberry in that way. Um, but I, a great song, super, super catchy. I mean, that's the thing you can say about all these songs. There aren't really any duds here, you know, like there really aren't any songs that I would necessarily skip uh, <clears throat> as a young listener. Um, it fills out the record and uh, yeah, yeah I, it's a know. good song for sure. Yeah. It's just, like I said, it just median strip and 500 up. I, I rate, higher personally but yeah i'm, I'm looking it's funny because like this record doesn't include the lyrics right. um i'm trying to think of does twice removed have the lyrics and i'm trying like i'm trying to think of which ones include lyrics yeah twice removed it. doesn't one chord doesn't <clears throat> i think the first one that would have had like navy actual blues. lyrics is navy blues yeah as far as i recall so maybe a lot of times the lyrics are, especially on this one, a little like I, like I actually had to look, I was like, let me look up these lyrics. Mm-hmm. Cause I knew that, you know, obviously the hook take it in is, you know, that's the, like the hook and the, the, 
chorus and everything. Um, and I'm looking, I'm like, to me, these lyrics are kind of like a descendancy, like early descendants hmm. where yeah. it was like these, like, you know, like when, when I'm reading the lines, like, you know, where it's almost like he's giving a warning to somebody mm. um, as like an outsider. I don't know. It, it had that uh, like Milo goes to college vibe to it. Maybe I'm just trying to make the connection, but I don't know. That's what I thought when I saw it. I was like, oh, these are kind of like, you know, like something where, yeah, like Ken said, maybe it could make you feel a little um, – like it wouldn't necessarily be a song they would write today, yeah. but as a young, early something twenties man, especially back then, late eighties, early nineties, or in the case of descendants, early eighties, yeah. like these kind of songs are pretty common. Yeah. You know, well, well, we it's, have- it's so, f- oh, I was just going to say, it's just, fun. it's, I don't know. I just, that's something that just popped in my head. Well, we obviously have visual evidence that Murph's a giant Descendants fan. He's mentioned it all the time. So there's something to that. I mean, perhaps the, the, this is another example of lyrics maybe written first um, or lyrics kind of written to sort of fit the, the sound formation that sounds really good over the music. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it is. It's, it's sort of like a. It's the song is sort of half like a warning to somebody. Like he's trying to be a friend, but there's also a, like a intimacy there too. You know, he's like sort of riding the line. <clears throat> kind of hard to decipher exactly what's occurring, and that's fine. I mean, again, songs don't always have to make complete sense or, or you know align with your life perfectly. Um, it, it's 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 beautifully sung and it's a super catchy song and I love it. And my note on this one was just like, again, like I said earlier, where did the knowledge for harmony come for these dudes in their early 20s? This is another song where the harmony are just outstanding. Um, these long drone out, you know, take it and like these long vowel sounds. Uh, and Chris and Patrick just sound, you know, angelic. Um mm. And they're kind of doing what I was talking about earlier, which is they've got the power of a band like Nirvana that was really big at the time with the voice of an angel over top of it. You know, it's this sort of magic <laughs> combination, you know? For sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Where, where Kurt's voice is more like, uh, I think Dave Grohl described it as like, he's boiling rocks in his throat or something. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you could put on Sloan for your mom and she'd be like, Oh, that's so sweet sounding. I like it or whatever. Um, right. I just, uh, I didn't realize this was released as a single until uh, Ken says, cause I'm, I, I think, cause usually I'm thinking in terms of vinyl, but I see yeah. here that it, it, uh, it was a CD single. So I'm yeah. going to have to yeah. seek that out. Yeah. <laughs> uh, get it on the, so, get it on the Instagram account. Sorry. Go ahead, Ken. That's right. Get your eight track, take it in copy um speaking of sweet 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 super voice vocals 500 up to me uh next song first of all how exciting is it that they're throwing it back into the set list now for the tour yeah uh and how exciting is it that you know this song still exudes a band dynamic um that it gets fans excited today. It's all of them together. It really is all of them together, except yeah. for Jay, but Jay's in there. Um, you know, and it's, it's an Andrew song that Patrick is singing, Chris doing, you know, sort of in, interjections on, uh, and Andrew has his weird Lou Reed spoken voice. Like my singing voice isn't, isn't there yet type moment. Um, and uh, apart from that, 
just fucking fun. The, the entire song is just so hilariously fun. Um, it, it's, it, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything at all. It's Andrew's classic kind of, I'm going to throw words together. It's going to sound poetic and cool and we can relate to it and think that it might mean something, but it doesn't mean anything. And especially when you have Patrick singing it, if this was Andrew singing it, I would think, okay, okay, look, he's doing his spoken word, uh, stream of consciousness, whatever. But because Patrick has this, like the, the way that he sings is very, intentional and it's very precise and it's very to me if like when patrick it's almost soulful like patrick almost has a soulful voice and so when he's saying this and delivering it it feels as though the lyrics mean something they don't probably mean anything but i do love that it's based on one of my favorite schoolyard games 500 up did you guys play 500 up in the states uh great i've never heard of it Oh my I God. always assumed it was a video game thing or something. So five, 500 up is, I think you're, you, you have to throw a ball in the air. And uh, I think the objective is to throw it basically as high as you can. And the person who's throwing it yells out a number of points. I haven't played this obviously in like 35 years. So um, they yell out or a number of points, essentially, you know, it's like 100 up, 200 up, 300 up. And then I think at 500 up, anybody can go, go and, and, and have a chance of catching the ball. But essentially the person who catches the ball is, um, uh, earns the points and it may or may not have been played on a baseball diamond. So when I think about like home bases around the corner, there's kind of that, uh, attribute there. So, you know, this is the, the sporting man, Andrew flexing his knowledge of, of, of schoolyard sports skills. Maybe it's an Ottawa thing, Andrew, you know, obviously coming from Ottawa. Um, this might be, this might be the inside scoop. Maybe it isn't. Maybe I'm just spouting bullshit. And let's not for, let's not forget the music video either. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, Patrick, Patrick, the fun. Patrick didn't write it, but I mean, he did write that bass part. Uh, he's got the hair for the letting it grow. Um, you know, and, 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 and a younger me would have just assumed this was a Patrick song, you know, as I go through the record, we haven't heard uh, sugar tune is coming up and that's sort of Patrick's like serious coming out party on this record. He's there for underwhelmed, but obviously this is his real first major lead on the record. He's kind of singing lead here. Like you said, with Chris backing him up pretty much the whole time. Um, and just, man, as soon as this song starts, there's nothing like, you know, underwhelmed's got that intro and it's fucking killer. But there isn't, and, and obviously I Am the Cancer puts you in the zone, but as soon as 500 Up, there's just something so sweet about it. As soon as it hits, that little guitar that's gently kind of bringing over, you know, the, the pounding beat and stuff, it's not any hitting you over the head. You know, here are these so-called, you know, grunge head guys who are Canada's Nirvana. You know, Nirvana aren't playing anything this subdued and sort of like uh, measured, you know. Um, as soon as you hear it, it's just there's something special about it. Great track. And it ends. I wanted to also mention too it yes, it does. That's right. Um, and what a crazy closer. Um I met I, I was I was listening with really good headphones this week and I heard something I hadn't heard before or heard in a while. Is right after Andrew says that's what they say. And Chris and Patrick do five hundred up. They hold that really big vocal. I don't know who it is, Chris or Patrick. One of them is modulating their voice up and down. Mm-hmm. over the other harmony line. One of them is going 500, uh, 
like they're kind of going up and down. So for everybody out there, take a listen to that little moment after Andrew says, that's what they say. There's some serious shit going on there. And, uh, you know, for a bunch of young 20 year old dudes, it's just fucking impressive sounding. I love it. What is better sounding than Chris and Patrick super voicing the shit out of themselves? <laughs> and this song yeah. is no exception. All right. So we move on to side two and to one of the remnants of the Peppermint EP, to Marcus said, to one of the remnants of the Peppermint EP and one of the remnants of Chris Murphy's NASCAD days, uh, talking about Marcus, the uh, art oracle from NASCAD. uh, And uh, essentially, what was the deal that uh, he dared them to write a song about him, or I forget? but Some, it, it, something that, in that regard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Within the past year, we posted the photo. There was a, there's a NASCAD account on Instagram yeah. and they just randomly post old late eighties, early nineties photos of various students. Uh, and it's unclear whether this was a project at the time, but somebody has access to this cache of like photos and they're just blasting them out there. They're largely in black and white being an art college that they're beautiful. Uh, and one of the po- photos popped up one day and sure enough, there's Andrew and four other people and one and, and in the credits or in the information of the picture it said you know andrew marcus da 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 and uh, i think it was chris or andrew or somebody confirmed yes that's the marcus in that picture so uh head back in time uh you know w- within the past year on our instagram account and find that black and white picture of the students at nasca and you'll see the marcus there um mm-hmm. but uh, yeah i think you've got it right ken he had kind of dared them like you know put you know put my name in one of the songs yeah i, be- I bet you can't write a song about me um <laughs> And they did. And the song uh, is also one of the ones for me that kind of stands the test of time. Potentially, I think one of the songs that also can be reformatted. Well, I, you know, I've, I've, I've seen this played live. It's on the Four Nights disc. It sounds great on Four Nights. I love Patrick doing the uh, Jenny Pierce part on Four Nights because he's yeah. got that kind of timbre. Um, to his voice anyways and you know it's it's certainly for me one of the i think one of the archaeological finds when you're going through the early sloan catalog as like a new sloan fan in the late 90s where you you stumble on is like oh this is actually pretty good because you just got through you know you had to listen to raspberry and take it in and it's like ah and then Marcus said comes and it's got this kind of undeniable charm and just again super catchy clever lyrics yeah i love this one it's so catchy man and and i'm noticing as i go through the lyrics here he is making reference to like paint you in a corner he's talking about the artist uh and to kind of put a timestamp on this one talking about his earlier uh love his earlier love of dc hardcore he says 83 man that's where i'd like to be and by my count that puts chris murphy in high school like grade nine basically and he might be just getting introduced to discord and, that kind of stuff. and all that yeah Exactly. So yeah, I'm thinking yeah, maybe that's where his head's at. Yeah. I, I, I always picture uh, like the Marcus, the older artist, because he's like 30 at this time, as opposed to the 20 year old Chris or something, just sort of reminiscing about his salad days. And that's not meant to be a hardcore um, double entendre, but like reminiscing about, man, that was that was when I was really at my peak, you know? And it's like. Or like Uncle Rico and uh, Napoleon Dynamite. Yeah. And how did I, how did I get old, you know? I'm 30. How did I ever get old? <laughs> but yeah, fantastic song, man. Like again, uh, you know, harder, harder, harder. It's just like one of the it's catchiest so songs in, in the discography. Yeah. Hard to deny. Like 
this album is just so giving. Like, I mean, I'm like, fuck, we've gone from I Am The Cancer to Medium Strip to Take It In, 500 up, Marcus said, and Ken, we continue on the next song. Like, I mean, these songs are just like hitting you over the head. Patrick, his emergence onto the scene, this is his only, like, to think about how present he is on this record, but this is his only song on the record, but he's still so yeah. present. Like, it was, to, to the listener, it feels like a band that has two front men at this point in time, but it's really yeah. the Chris Murphy show. I mean, at the end of the day, smeared and twice removed, to a certain extent, twice removed. It's, you know, twice removed gets more into sharing duties between Chris and Patrick, um, but you know, to, it's, it's the Chris Murphy show. So it's kind of startling to think that this is his only song on the album and sugar tune is, um, for, for a guy who is really into like heavy metal and into kind of obscure, uh, obscure rock genres moving into Sloan and was kind of like the Jesus and Mary chain guy and the dinosaur guy. He puts in sugar tune, which is. The, pop song. Like, the pop, like a pop song. Is this yeah. the most sugary tune on the whole fucking album? It probably is. Yeah. You know, like Jesus. Yeah. yeah, it's like the 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 one thing about this song that makes it a little bit that makes it a little bit askew with what you would expect of a later era Sloan song is just how he sings sound and repeats that like nasally sound. But the rest of it is super. This is a song that could fit well on Octa as far as I'm concerned. There's that footage too that we've seen. We've posted it, I'm sure, on the gram before, but it's of the guys, I want to say late 92, early 93. It's maybe their second or third time in Toronto, um, and they're playing Lee's Palace. And the clip from Much Music is is the breakdown part where Chris and, and, um, and Patrick are both saying, I wrote for you the sugar too. And they're just harmonizing with no with very little musical accompaniment. And those vocals are note perfect. They sound great. And as we've been talking through the action-packed stuff, I mean, a, a record that was built for the live setting, in a way, these ones are as well. You know, like, I mean, hearing those vocals and then seeing them kind of slam into the music after, I mean, just like, I would have shit my pants if I was, uh, you know, in my teens or early 20s seeing these guys at, at Lee's Palace in like 92, 93. Like, fuck, like, you know, so so for a song that is so unbelievably catchy, that chorus, like, oh my God fantastic uh, you know one of it's it's top maybe two catchiest songs on the record with underwhelm maybe for me like it's absolutely outstanding so uh yeah for him like it's funny for for young patrick pilot to come in with this one it, you know you have to imagine i'm not sure how the song was introduced but he shows up one day and the other guys have got to be looking at each other like fucking hell like holy shit you know if if this wasn't if he wasn't already completely accepted and had the job you know you come in with sugar tune and it's like okay let's now we're talking fuck like holy shit balls yeah for sure i mean and this one too is where you can really see i wonder like if this was because i think when we talked at the top of the episode about they toured with Lemonheads. And like to me, this would have been maybe the song where I'd be like, yeah, th- these guys would be a good fit because it it definitely like I don't know if you guys are familiar with the free fame Lemonheads where they were you know fuzzy guitars but catchy, so like it makes sense. It's like that's like a that's a good bill. 
And I want to mention here too, this song in particular, <clears throat> young Andrew Scott here is playing to a click, perhaps for the first time. And as somebody who was an, a young drummer getting used to playing with a click, you hear sort of variations of, you know, like you feel the humanity in somebody, even when you're, you're playing with a click. And then obviously back then they didn't have pro tools. They weren't aligning to a grid. His performance is fucking flawless. You know what I mean? Like, especially even a song like Take It In that's so beat driven and any of the things that are coming up in the future, <clears throat> like Left of Center, they're so beat driven. Um, the performance on, on Sugar Tune and the other songs, obviously, but this one in particular is the one that I really noted and I made a note here. Like, just listen to young Andrew Scott just playing the shit out of this song. You know, there's no modulation, there's no moving around. He is just on the money. His performance is insane. I can't believe these guys are making this music in the early 20s. It's insane. I have some fun stuff about the next song. Yeah, let's, let's dive do into it, it. What's that next Double song called, Greg? Left to Center. So right. first off, when I first really started to dive in, I thought this was an Andrew song. Mm-hmm. It kind of has a vibe to me of an Andrew song. So I was pleasantly surprised when I saw it was Murph. But what's funny is to go back to Nirvana in the book, come as you are the official, it was like at the time, the official biography, Michael Azarad quotes this song. Some of the lyrics of the song, just, you know, he's mainly talking about like, I don't know, trends or whatever, like in, in relation to, you know, the times. I I forget what the context was, but he says like, you know, Canadian rockers Sloan. In fact, you know what? I'm going to look, you can, I'm going to look it up real quick because I have the book on my phone. We'll come back to you, buddy. Yeah. Left to center is kind of interesting because, you know, we, we always analyze the lyrics and stuff, uh, you know, to, to sort of pinpoint what's real, what could be perceived as real. This one kind of knowing Murph now is pretty non-biographical. He's obviously either telling a story or he's saying it from the perspective of somebody else. Yeah. Yeah, um, I don't sure. know if he was in grade three in 1977. That's the only thing that maybe kind of checks out. Sure. Um, but other than that, like he's not a middle child and you know, the ages of his, he's only got one sibling, not two. The ages are not correct. Um, lies. Lies. Yeah. So lies. it's, it's kind of just a fun exercise in, you know, writing. And perhaps this is another one where it was a poem first, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And this is sort of a vibe song, you know, like I can imagine this one being, like I said before, this one and a two seater. Is it two seater or is it this one? Two seater. <clears throat> I think it was actually this one more so. This one to me really reads like a Carney Lake Road song, repurposed. Mm-hmm. Take away the funk beat, just have it be four on the floor. You know what I mean? Because uh, the singing here is sort of very indicative of what he was doing in KLR. Yeah, sure. I could yeah. be way off, and I'll be corrected, but uh, that's sort of my hot take on it. Greg, please go ahead. So, I first had heard about this song when it was pretty new, never, you know, uh, it's funny now to think like we're in the age of the internet. So like you can be reading something and see, Oh, let me hear what this sounds like and go over. But in 1993, that wasn't a possibility. You couldn't just, you know, find a song like that, but <clears throat> there's an excerpt in come as you are, which was, I bought the book the day it came out. Uh, it was the Nirvana biography by Michael Azarad. And there's a paragraph where he quotes the left of center, um, the context of it being, you know, they're kind of just talking about the whole nevermind phenomenon. Like, you know, was it 
right place at the right time, whatever. And it says, Nevermind came along at exactly the right time. This was music by, for, and about a whole new group of young people who had been overlooked, ignored, or condescended to. Uh, as the 20-something band Sloan sang in Left of Center, I really can't remember the last time I was the center of the target of pop culture. I'm slightly left of center of the bullseye you've created. It's sad to know that if you hit me, it's because you were not careful. So they used that quote. And I watched uh, Nardwar when he interviewed Kurt Cobain in uh, 94, early 94 in, I think, Vancouver it was after they played. And, you know, he does this thing. He's like, here's a Canadian connection. Uh, Sloan is quoted in your quoted in your book. And Kurt's like, I have no idea. <laughs> I have no idea who that band is. And then Courtney goes, yes, you do. They're, they're the Sloan band. They're, they're on our label. She mm-hmm. was like uh, Jackie's boyfriend. So I don't know who was, who would Jackie's boyfriend have been? I don't know who that is, but I just found that kind of funny. He was mm-hmm. just like, I have no idea who they are. No, I was going to say, it's funny. Like I me mean, cause, cause- Chris was maybe the center of pop culture in his world, you know, like Sloan were becoming a big deal <clears throat> as these songs were written and stuff. But, uh, um, you know, they, just by the virtue of the fact, like I said earlier, they weren't playing music. They were playing something that was unlike anything surrounding them. Um, but yeah, I love that quote. I, I love that that's in there. Um, but uh, yeah, just a, this song is for me, like a, a like a big time vibe song. Um you know, not something that's going to start off the record or whatever, but it's a sort of more of a musical experiment and something that would be like a highlight of a, a live show. Just like that, you know, the fact it's just a thumping bass drum, you know what I mean? Like there isn't really anything that kind of becomes a discernible full four on the floor beat or anything like that. Sort of like an interlude. Yeah. The song itself is kind of left the center in a way, you know. Lemon Zinger, our, our next track and the emergence of uh, Jay Ferguson within this is this is his first no it isn't pretty voice I'm sorry this is uh, his first right. song on a, on a studio LP however you know it's interesting that like I don't feel as though Jay hung on to his my bloody Valentine influence for very long like it's this it's this song and what's what's there to decide pretty much and that's yeah. it yeah you know so it's like he turned away from that fairly quickly but you know I certainly hear lots of loveless on this one. And I don't understand the lyrics. You know, if you if you listen to the song, it's the one where his vocals are really buried, absolutely in the mix. Yes, that's the shoegaze for sure. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a Jay Ferguson stan, <laughs> so I I love this song. Um, I think the lyrics are cool, but yeah, I don't know the melody. So sweet, you want to die violently this is the big i mean he's basically doing you made me realize by my my bloody valentine here like sure. when you listen to that song the song he's definitely borrowing that sort of vibe and sort of the way that it's sung the, the different the big difference maker here is that jay comes in with that voice like it's just like a crazy mbv sounding song and then the whole song just levels out in a way that the rest of the record doesn't and you get that sweet voice you get that yeah. that jay voice and we, we we talk about and we think about jay really kind of coming into maturity later He's great on TR and obviously Okta, he delivers big time, but I mean, he's delivering here too. Like what an amazing voice, you know, it's another color for this record. Yeah. What else did I have to say about that? I think, I mean, obviously the My Bloody Valentine influence is heard big time. It rocks like the rest of the album, Uh, but out of nowhere you get, you get his voice and um, 
yeah, a beautiful song. Uh, I just, I, I mm-hmm. love the way his voice sounds. It's, it's showing another color and it's showing that there's, um, that this band has, that they're not just a one trick pony and that they've got different vocalists all over the place here. We've, we've heard yeah. from everybody and now we're hearing from Jay. And when but he it's shows not even up, the it's, best. It's a, I was sorry. Oh, I get excited. No, just, yeah, I get so when, excited talking about sh- Jay. When he shows up here right towards the end of the record, it's such a pleasant surprise. Hmm. I was just going to say, it's not even the best Jay song on the record. No, it isn't. That's common. Yeah. It isn't. But you know what this song reminds me of? And I, I, I isn't this? Is it called "Sometimes" on uh, on Loveless? Yeah, that's that's what I get from it. You know, it's kind of undeniable that he's. I don't want to say it's derivative either. I, I mean, define derivative, right? Because there's influence and then there's copycat. But you can, you know, you certainly. I think what stands out to me. Uh, in this, Rob, is that you know we've talked about the J breakthrough kind of happening in the late '90s, early 2000s, when he almost sets himself apart from the rest of the band in terms of consistent quality of songwriting. I don't think he's there yet. Certainly lyrically, I don't think he's there yet. However, his taste is impeccable. <laughs> yeah. And he's instrumentation. The, one- the instrumentation here is is fantastic. Yeah, he and and also as you listen to the record, you hear those sort of Peter Buck guitars, like the picking. Like as I listen mm-hmm. to the record, I kind of just assume that the that the hardcore channel is Patrick, like just sort of the driving guitar. And anytime anything breaks into sort of like a picking figure, I always like assume Johnny Marr. I, I always assume yeah. it's Jay, you know. So yeah, he's he's yeah. leaving his footprint big time over this whole record. He's there, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. and and he's he's you know, the real tastemaker here, you know, he's that kid who grew up in the record store hearing everything. And he's mm-hmm. the one who played my bloody Valentine on the radio that Chris heard and freaked out about. And then they brought that, that kind of vibe to the band. So um, yeah, Jay is definitely the tastemaker guy. He's the, he's the guy who I would run all my songs by. Is this cool? Mm-hmm. Is it, does it suck? I think Chris says right. that, yeah. you know, like Chris yeah. even goes yeah. to Jay with yeah. like, you know, what have, what have I got here? You know? And yeah. I also agree about the, the the more jangly type guitar I always just assume is is Jay between knowing that he loves Johnny Marr and Peter Buck and yeah. Yeah. you know all the guys that they those guys loved but yeah, yeah. I think um, but I think Jay kills it on the next record too but save that for another day or we'll me just twi- talking to myself yeah we got to do a twice removed part whatever with Greg because <laughs> sure. I but, love that record right on man well next up Chris with two seater. And for this one, I kind of feel like you get a, a hint at like what you were saying earlier, Greg, about Chris's early punk band kind of experience. This is yeah. definitely there. It, this song doesn't go hardcore in any kind of way, but that sensibility is there lyrically, the, the musical choice that's being made. He's kind of taking what he did in punk, mixing it with the Carney Lake Road thing and kind of filtering it through the brief of Sloan, like I said earlier, as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, yeah, so yeah. Uh, and a again, little bit of like the Drummond, effect on his vocals, crazy. right? Right? Yeah, it's like, like he, there's some distortion. The yeah, I don't yeah. know. Ken, maybe can, you can speak to it. I don't know if it's he's singing through a pedal or something. No, it's just it's just overdriven. So there's just okay. distortion on on. It, it, there's too much gain on the input. Essentially, it's uh, if you if you listen to uh, like Weenie Beanie on the Foo Fighters' first album, this was like there was an era when grunge bands they would have one song that was like this, and it was just like the singer doing weird unintelligible lyrics through a distorted mic. So this is, this is, I guess, uh, Sloan's weenie beanie. 
and and this this song it seems to take the place of what could have also been um what was on peppermint like like torn like this and torn yeah. to me kind of are interchangeable and i think this yeah. is the one that chris kind of went with and that this Too song bad. again yeah i mean i really like both of them but, but i understand i mean like torn's kind of got the double bass drum thing going on so maybe they were thinking at the time like maybe that's passe who knows that's too but, rush. Um, yeah it's too fresh chris would like that but again this is another song that i have to know listener go back and check out andrew playing here uh he's not just fucking around like he's being very intentional with what he's playing you know a lot of punk guys are kind of just playing as hard as they can and as fast as they can all the time uh andrew's definitely showing some reservation here even though the song's kind of heavier but what he's playing is very thought out and it's very musical and it really fits in with everything else. He's not just fucking around. It's very thought out. Um, so yeah. kudos to young Andrew Scott on, in that regard. This is an air drumming record for sure. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Absolutely. For, yes. for real. Like this is like, and I'm not a drummer, but this is one of those ones where like you're, you're air drumming. That era had a lot of good air drumming records. Yeah. I think. And, and this is up there with the best of them. And don't forget when you're air drumming to do your stretches first, because on, on this record, you're having to hit the symbols up here. Yeah. You don't want to pull a hammy. Yeah. Your symbols <laughs> yeah. are a good solid, you know, six or seven feet in Three the air. Three meters in the air. Yeah. 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 For sure. And I'm short, so I'd have to, that'd be, yeah. But um, yeah, no, this cool song. I mean, let's be real. This band doesn't have a bad song. No. Come and on. this would have been, I, this I haven't been, heard one. This song would have been dynamite live. You know what I mean? Like you take, you get, you get photos of the audience just fucking climbing all over each other. And Patrick, I was going to say back. some stage dives. Yeah. Chris and Jay are like, you know, fucking pile driving into each other and just like shirtless <laughs> in the back going fucking bananas. That's what I think of when I hear this song. And, uh, you know, this was really indicative probably of, you know, what their shows sort of cascaded into at the time. Right. Right. Um, right. I believe, I believe the technical term is slam dancing. Um, anyways we we are on to our last track of the album and really uh like pure gold pure gold and i for me one of the more underrated songs because it's hidden away at the end of smeared where if you're like me uh in the late 90s you would have listened to the first part of like the first side of smeared essentially and been like yeah that's really cool and then you would have moved on to listening to navy blues again so you almost like as a fan you almost forget that this latter half smeared gold is there and i think you know rob we've we've t- talked about the interview that they're doing on is it q on cbc uh where yes. uh they each, each choose a song right that's right they each choose a song yeah. from I, I don't know if it had this, to be right? another member song yeah uh, patrick patrick chose this as being his favorite man that shows from, how deep i dove where i knew the video you were referencing yeah, yeah. i've got problems <laughs> you know and you're in the right place man the one one of my favorite things is about about that is watching that video and when they when they play the song because they played the song in studio uh you can sort of see the reaction on the faces of the band members and jay is just totally embarrassed but like what's that i I get it it's not a song that he would write today it's not a song that he would have even written on octa but and if it might feel like the lyrical content might feel juvenile. It might feel, you know, a little bit naive. Certainly his voice isn't where it would be in a couple of albums, but like, holy shit, what kind of like talking about musical sophistication. And this is what I mean. It's like, 
his songwriting wasn't where it would be eventually, but his taste is incredible and his ear is amazing. He has such a good ear for instrumentation, mixing, balance, um, the way that the sleigh bells kind of work into this. I know it's also a cliche of the period and of certain, uh, like, is it slow dive? Do they have sleigh? I, I forget. Maybe not. Sure. Um, but like, it, you know, it feels like, okay, it's, yeah, this is Midlands, England. Um, but <laughs> it, it, it works out great. And like, what a, what a palate cleanser, as you say, Rob, always to close off an album that's really up and down in terms of Jesus life and quiet. Yeah, whatever. It's sick, man. I don't mean, I don't, don't be embarrassed, Jay. I mean, and I'll for, say, for your first record, you, you're, you're, you're right on the money, man. Like, I don't know if Jay will ever hear this, but somebody please let him know that we talked about it. <clears throat> I think he's a little unnecessarily harsh on his younger self. And we kind of get that impression in that interview. You know what I mean? He's being sort of jovial, but you can tell that he's maybe a little like eh, about it. Like they say, Oh, we should put it back in the set. And he's like, not going to happen. And we, I got, I got the impression during his interview with us that he's kind of lukewarm at best about the Carney Lake road stuff, you know? So, but I, I would say to Jay, man, you got to get, go easy on yourself terms of early early 20s jay because brother he fucking delivered here guy and he mentioned in that q interview that this song is basically sort of a lift of don't ask why by my my bloody valentine or at least that's what's maybe the inspiration there might even be some vocal melodies and chord changes that are reminiscent of that song exactly but um <clears throat> it completely catches you off guard you know like we we know what they're about to do in, in a year and a half two years from this point and as much as jay is referencing you know mbv or whatever here he's also kind of giving the listener a cue to this band's going somewhere you know what i mean like they're putting this song at the end you know and and, and you could you could you know you could rationalize that you know it's 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 sort of a cliche thing for bands to put sort of like a you know that the, the one song it's like a zombies thing like the last song on the record is going to be just the one vocal only kind of whatever uh like a solo vocal song so to put something a little more melancholy at the end as like a closer you know sure but <clears throat> he delivers here and he kind of like i was just saying gives an idea of where this band's going or at least that the gates are wide open and he he opens up the gates at the end here anything is now possible you know um yeah like it's I not think, just gonna be fuzzy guitars right that these guys have a completely different gear there's no way that they would have been able to have the career they had if they just stuck to the fuzzy guitars and st- like do you know what I'm saying? Like, we wouldn't be talking sure. about them on a podcast and and celebrating their thirteenth. You know, a yeah. band that has thirteen studio albums. Yeah, like there is there I is mean, no there is no collective soul cast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that we like, know of yet. <laughs> Greg, are you busy next week? Where are we going to get going? <laughs> we got to we got to do a whole episode on gel. Uh, but J- Jay is the guy you mentioned him. Jay is the guy who is a is a. Uh, you know, he's he's at the root of the fact that they take that turn into twice removed. You know what I mean? Like, uh, you know, I, I don't know that Andrew and Patrick were necessarily the, the most excited about going in that direction. Uh, Chris and Jay, I think, were steering that ship more so than anything. I think Andrew just wanted to make a pavement record. But anyway, but no, he appears here at the end with something that's just so beautiful. And uh, nobody else in the band could have sung this song this way the band is constantly giving him props. Like in that interview, they're like, you know, can we bring this back to the live set? They want to do it. Andrew performed it as his show closer on the Andrew Scott is terrified special. It's fucking, that's the song that he sh- closes the fucking show with. 
uh, you know, it's Patrick's pick on that Q interview. So there's a reverence for it within the band, which I'm, it, which warms my heart. You know, like I'm glad that Jake gets his props when he deserves it. Sure. And like I said, I think his contributions to the next record, even though there's only two on there as well, um, are two of my favorite songs on there. And he does what this whole record does to kind of encapsulate and wrap up here is that Jay and the rest of the band accomplish, which is something very difficult, which is to take your inspiration and not only match it, but go beyond it. You know, like you can hear this record maybe more so than the others and hear the influences. It's very obvious, you know, but they kind of, in a way, they sort of uh, supersede their influences. You know what I mean? Like you can put all of the influential records for this period on the table and I'm taking smeared. You know, like from the production, from the vocals, from the lyrics, from the personalities that these guys just exude, you know, mm. um, it's unreal. And I'm, and I'm glad it's not their best album. Yeah. Because what, what a letdown that would be <laughs> if their best album was their first album yeah. and they last for 30 years. So what 100%. a testament to a great band that it's a great record and it's not even their best album. Yeah. yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, uh, it, I think what sets them apart from their peers already in 1992, and I'm talking about, you know, especially their, their rock music peers and not so much about um, snap. snap. What, they, what they had, which many of their peers did not, is like an even spread of talent throughout the band. There, there's, there's never been one guy on Sloan who the other three have been having to pull along. You know, it's for incredibly mature musical minds at this point in their lives, just based on their very unique histories, I think. It's great now, looking back on 32 years of music and 12 studio albums, to be able to document how they've progressed as a band. And to think about, you know, for us, their their pinnacle statement, for, as far as I'm concerned, came you know 15 years into their into their career. Like how many bands can claim that? And they're still riding that level. So you know while while we can look back on Smeared as kind of like the humble beginnings, um, preparing for this episode for me certainly has helped me again uncover some of the gems that I might have glossed over when I was just casually listening to the album. Um, but, you know, I hope that our discussion today also encouraged you, dear Sloancast listener, to go and do the same. The best thing you can do, I think, is listen to Peppermint, listen to Smeared, listen to the uh, B-sides of the 12-inch and, and singles that were released uh, following Smeared as well. You know, listen to Ragdoll, listen to Pillow Fight, listen to Laying Blame, and then enjoy that progression of this band's trajectory into twice removed and then, you know, into timelessness, essentially. Absolutely. Don't write this one off just because it's a little different. I I liken them to, um, and another band with multiple songwriters and I have my tea mug here and, uh, also label label mates at one time, teenage fan club. Yeah. I think it's the same deal. Their their first, their first record was not really indicative of what they ended up eventually sounding like, you know, Catholic education. It's awesome, but it's just, you know, noisy, really dinosaur influenced and Neil Young and all that. And then they just came into their own three main songwriters and a, another just outstanding career of great records. So 
You said it, man. I, I wrote some bullshit last night at like three in the morning, trying to surmise the record in my head. And I'll do my best to kind of read through this little paragraph. Um, it's all kinds of spelling mistakes. I don't know if I'll make it through, but here it goes. <clears throat> the fact that a bunch of guys were not only capable enough to do this, but succeeded at doing it speaks to their many uh, abilities. Um, here we are 32 years later. Uh, and as much as this album definitely sounds like the early 90s, it's a bellwether of that period. Uh, and it allowed them to spend, or it allowed them rather to punch their ticket, get their foot in the door, and incre- incre- then create this massive body of work. Art is important, music is important, and healing. And this is a band, whether they recognize it or not, um, this early on in their career created a sound and a legacy that is nearly flawless. I don't know how much of that was intelligible, but there you go. Anyway, yeah, I'm so glad Smeared exists. Like, you know, uh, it, like I said, it in, the, in that little bit there, it sort of is the launching point for this perfect band that has since just made album after album of perfection and are still going today. Um, you know, I, I hope that they do some sort of recognition of the anniversary, whether it be like a show. We've heard that the that there's an anniversary release in the in the tube, you know, who knows when that's going to come out. <clears throat> it's definitely something that's on deck. Um, I can't wait. And I'm going to revel in all of that material. Like, cause this is, this yeah. is one, like we said earlier, we weren't fans of this point. We weren't aware of the band uh, and kudos to the people who caught into them earlier when we were of age to do that. But um, I love revisiting this period. It's a treat. Same. Yeah. And I was, I was just going to add, it's a great debut. And like I said earlier, it's, it's a good thing. It's not the best one. Cause you know, then you're only going downhill. What fun is that? It's like, you know, guns and roses having appetite for destruction. Like you're, or, or even Weezer with the, the blue record. I know Aaron Pinto is like shaking his fist right now saying, no, Pinkerton is better, which I thought to be, to be, to be fair, Pinkerton was the second album and it's been downhill since then. So, and a steel and, and, and so. I love, I do love Pinkerton, but what I'm saying <laughs> is basically like to, to, it's just a testament to how great Sloan are that they have a great debut yes. and they still got better. Whereas a lot of these other bands did not. So. Yeah, it's like to use the Beatles reference again. It's like if if the first Beatles record was just like a skiffle album, you know, something that was like <laughs> timely, and then the second record is fucking Sgt. Pepper's or the White Album or something. You know what I mean? It's like it's that yeah. crazy an arc. Um, but you know, these guys, this amazing perfect band, the greatest band of all time, ladies and gentlemen, as far as we're concerned, you know, this debut is unreal. And if this is the only thing they did, fucking kudos to them. Um, mm-hmm. I do want to mention here at the end, Ken, do you remember, just for everybody listening, this will be kind of a fun fact. Do you remember everybody who's on the cover here? Do you remember everybody's names? I believe it's oh, Dave Marsh on the left, yeah. uh, who, who's a, a musician, Haligonian, would go on to be in the Super Friends and Joel Plaskett. Look at Greg's big, huge Look at this yeah. Yeah. You son of a bitch. Uh, the person at the far right is Fiona, right? Is that Fiona Hyatt, yes. Andrew's uh, yes. better half? Yeah, yes. I'm blanking on the person in the middle. Do you recall? We'll have to we'll have to get uh, into the Murder Records discography comments on Instagram to figure this one out. Oh, that's a great account. Real quick, yeah. also we have to touch on the the photos on the back. I love that Chris has a ring pop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There was a period of time then- where I would buy a ring pop just because of that. Fuck yeah. 
Love it. I think I'm gonna get. I think one. I did a shitty. I think I had a shitty band photo in one of my stupid early bands where I'm wearing a fucking ring puck because of that. Uh, <laughs> let's uh, anyway. Yeah, so good. So, to ring pops and to Sloan. Absolutely. <laughs> Delicious and influential, both of them. Oh my god! Great, thank you so much for joining. Thank you us guys for sprinkling for sprinkling your your wisdom. Uh, over over these, this episode, we we always love having you on, and you'll have to join us again for another one soon. I would love to if you ever want to do twice removed like this. I have some thoughts on it. Absolutely, awesome. Well, for Ken, Greg, listener, we thank you so much uh, because this podcast is dedicated to you. Because this podcast is for people who cut their hair and let it grow. We'll see you next time right here on Sloancast. Peace. Okay.